0: Carrel, you have traveled far one, one journey is ended. a new
1: journey, journey is about to begin hey everybody Magnus here I do a podcast called trennis Magnus punches reality what I do is spend six episodes talking about comics movies and TV shows but all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus talks about Smallville. Every 8th Tuesday, only at com.
2: makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun.
3: Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It it's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important.
1: to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host Magnus, and today I'm continuing this epic mega-series of mega-epicness wherein I basically continue building up and getting closer, ever closer, to the theatrical release of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And as has become customary, In these episodes, I am not alone. Nope. Today, I am once again rejoined by my old friend, Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you?
2: I am doing well. So excited for this movie coming out. And I'm looking forward to taking some more super comics by the hand today
1: and showing them what for. (laughs) Me too, actually. And, you know, like just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, if you don't mind. You know, apart from the Batman v Superman reaction episode, this is actually the final thing that you and I have recorded. It's kind of funny that, you know, as we've gone through the series, we have recorded this nothing at all like the uh, actual release order in which all this stuff is going to come out. But at least at the time that Wilson and I are recording this it is November the 11th and I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I'm a little bit of a Christmas junkie that combined with the fact that I really have no like no uh, special fondness for the month of November means I'm pretty much already balls deep and in in Christmas mode already. So it's been a lot of Christmas. I'm sorry. What?
2: Yeah. Bring on the Christmas. I like it. Um, Thanksgiving is always one of those things that's kind of, I enjoy it. I enjoy seeing the family and we're doing something special this year, but, but I, Christmas is my holiday.
1: Yeah. And I mean, to me, I kind of like, to the degree that I, 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 I guess recognize the existence of the entire month of November, which I'm usually reluctant to do, but like to the degree that I, recognize its existence at all to me it's really just sort of an extended preamble slash buildup slash placeholder to and for christmas you know and that's just the way that i've always looked at it but the reason i mention it here is to say that it you know i have no idea what direction this conversation that wilson and i are about to have what direction this might go in but if you hear us talking about christmas and whatnot well just keep that in mind so now just between uh, – just uh, just between you and me and also to kind of peel the curtain back even further, it's really been quite a while since we recorded together the last time. It's actually been a couple of months. So how you been doing, man? It's been a while.
2: Uh, I've been good. Um, school's been going long. It's a new school year. Um, we're, you know – shoot, 11 weeks into the thing now, 12 maybe? I don't know. So um, – the, the the kids have gotten their first report card had their emotional reactions and, and then slid back into the slump of okay well that's over now we're just back in normal business and so i've got i've got to start motivating them again to no 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 you you need you need to keep actually doing school and, and don't <laughs> don't just stop because you're 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 tired or whatever um but it's been good and today's odd wednesday off in the middle of a week because Veterans Day, we always take off, and it happened to land in the middle of a week. Last year was on a Tuesday, so we got a four-day weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday off. But this year, um, nope, two days on, day off in the middle, two days on. And uh, it's just a little bit odd.
1: Well, oh yeah, and I guess you're probably going to get screwed over a little bit next year, because that's going to be a Friday that it falls on next year. Because of we'll week have a three-day
2: weekend, that'll be nice, but...
1: Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, right, but it's just a, maybe it could have been a four-day weekend again. So yeah,
2: we're gonna, we're gonna the leap year is gonna cheat us out of another four-day weekend.
1: Oh, that sucks. Well, um, now, not that it's any of my business or anything, but I guess uh, I guess Lily's probably struggling with senioritis right about now, isn't she? She's just about wait. How old is she? Eighth, eighth grade. Oh so, shit. Okay. Wow. No. Qu-
2: senioritis of middle school though.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. What? You know what? It's funny you should mention that. I remember when I was in eighth grade, you know, basically the structure, at least here, apparently different places do it different ways, but at least here, junior high is like seventh and eighth grade, right? So right about Christmas of my eighth grade year, I started looking around junior high and it hit me. It's like, I have done pretty much everything now. There's literally nothing more this place can offer me. That I haven't done to death already, and I don't know. It, it, it's a weird kind of empty feeling, you know. I don't know if, like, I don't know if that's how you felt about it when you were that age, but certainly that's that's where I was coming from.
2: Yeah, it's one of those things where you, you you feel like you should, you know, feel differently. It's kind of like adulthood. Like I don't really feel much different than I felt when I was 25. Just you know, there's a bit more of me, me to move around and get tired all the time. But um, so it's like it, there's there there never was like this big revelatory dawn of adulthood that that you expect to happen or you know whenever any sort of big uh, time in your life comes those tend to not be very special unless you take really extra effort to make them memorable they just kind of happen and then they're gone and
1: la 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 that's very true and it's kind of funny you know there was this it 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 wasn't bad but i ended up getting called to uh, hr uh, it's several months ago, actually at this point, but I ended up getting hauled into HR because basically it's not that I was in trouble; it was the company that was in trouble, and I didn't know it. But basically, they, you know, there was a problem that they wanted to fix with me. It was not that I had a problem that they wanted to fix; they wanted to fix their problem with me. Get it? And mm-hmm. so, but you know, you don't necessarily know that, you know, going into it. They just say, hey, you know, HR wants to talk to you, and so. Next thing you know, your balls shrivel up. And so it's the exact same way I always felt when the call would come over the PA. Hey, Magnus needs to go to the principal's office. You know, that same exact feeling as when I was like in second grade. And it's just weird, you know, that certain things, it they never really go away. It's It's just that the context changes. So, yeah. yeah
2: yeah it does. And as a teacher, I'm constantly getting observed by my my uh, my administration, mm-hmm. and those official observations come with a whole lot of rigmarole, and it's it's that same process of feeling like feeling like not necessarily you're going to get called in the principal's office, but that like the principal is going to come into your life mm-hmm. and watch you and then call you into his office to tell you about everything he saw. Yeah, well, <laughs> and it's, 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 yeah,
1: I'm not a teacher myself, but I've got a lot of family members who are, and in the joke, I'm not going to, I'm sure, you know, what the traditional joke is, and I'm not going to repeat that here, but the joke that we kind of modified was those who can do those who can't critique those who can, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when you think about it, like just from the like from the standpoint of your job and just like the day to day, I guess, reality of what you do. You don't strictly need a principal to do the fundamentals of your job. You know, I mean, it's I I would think it's like in terms of statistics, it's the rare occasion when you need the administrators by contrast, the administrators don't really have a job without you, you know. So I guess what I'm saying is they need you a lot more than you need them. When you think about it, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it, I don't know if that makes you feel any better, but there you have it.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, they, they they do need me, but I, I I like I like them to like me. <laughs> I'm one of, I'm one of those employees. I I like the approval of my superiors. It it just makes life more pleasant that way.
1: Well, understand that.
2: So I guess well, we have um <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna segue it. sounds like you're gonna segue too.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Well, and so uh, go ahead and uh, take it., uh, what are we talking about today?
2: Well, we have reached the point in our discussion where we are ready to talk about a turning point in the history of Superman. Woo-hoo! where he got his own brand new number one. Uh, by Jerry Siegel and jo- oh wait not Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. that's the wrong Superman number one. Hold on a second, let me get another long box. Okay, by John Byrne and uh, Terry Austin, Superman number one from
1: 1987. Yes, indeed. And I guess the reason that I that I chose this issue uh, for us to talk about number one, the whole point of this miniseries is not just to talk about Batman and Superman, although there's that. It's to talk about different facets and different eras of Batman and Superman and episodes that you, no offense, but no, but episodes that you weren't able to participate in have Batman comics from approximately the same vintage, but there really weren't too many uh, Superman comics from this era, apart from uh, what we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks with. Uh, Dark Knight – or actually next week I should say with Dark Knight over Metropolis. But apart from that, there really wasn't going to be much else in terms of an opportunity for the Burn Age. And so I wanted to make the most of it while, while I could. <coughs>
2: Excuse me. We, we could have done like a, a 12 or 15 episode um, journey through every media incarnation of the death and return of Superman story.
1: And the thought crossed my mind, but then I realized that some attorneys or worse yet, some mafia thugs and dark black business suits and sunglasses and stuff may stop by my door, break my legs, break my headset and maybe a few other things. I mean, I just figured that uh, Bailey and Taylor – might have a little something something to say about that. So,
2: And, and demonzo's right hand is always really rough when his left hand misbehaves.
1: Don't I know it. Yeah. And by the way, I'm speaking as the guy that never got that crew of Filipino interns, you know, or Filipina interns. So, yeah, I mean, I, I very well know the taste of Demonzo's wrath. So... No, in the interest of uh, maintaining my freedom and God knows my personal health, I decided this may be the safer thing for us to talk about. So in relation to that, I thought, well, Superman number one, not a bad, not, not a bad alternative. And honestly, this is one of those comics that I'm, I'm kind of happy that I read when I did, because, you know, when you're a – I'm sure you remember, but when you're a kid – you, you're not necessarily able to follow every single issue of every single comic that comes – well, I say that. Maybe probably today. Now you probably can. But back when you and I were kids and your comic outlet is the supermarket or it's the convenience store or something like that, you're not necessarily able to, to get every single issue because maybe they don't order every single issue or maybe just you know through weird machinations of fate you're not able to get every single issue that that comes out, even if every single issue is available. So it's sort of of like roulette. And Superman number one, it was one of those things that was, it just eluded me, right? Now I got Superman number two and a, a couple of others, but Superman number one, I wasn't actually able to read until probably like 1989 or 1990 or something like that as a back issue. And... So, my perspective on it then you know as a like as a ten year old is a lot different than it would have been as a six year old, which maybe makes a lot of sense but I think it actually works out for the best and just looking at this cover though, this I think is I think the burn Age has a criminal a criminally underrated number of awesome covers and really right from the start I mean it's not like they need a time to find their sea legs in terms of developing badass covers. My view is that once you get past the Man of Steel miniseries, pretty much all of the Burn Age covers are are gold. You know, I mean, you get occasional goofy ones, but for the most part, a lot of them are gold right from the start.
2: And this, I really, really do like this cover. I mean, it, you have um, you don't realize who it is until you get into the issue. We have Metallo in all of his green, glowy Kryptonite goodness, and Superman. Um, dying basically on the foreground um and it, it's a great cover but i i wonder it it seems to go against the grain of your traditional number one iconic cover image type of thing you know mm-hmm. i mean it comes with a cover copy it's your first issue and it could be your last but i don't know i i when i see the front page of superman bursting through a wall i expect something more like that you know to be on the cover of uh, just a really cool Superman pose. And then and then throwing the meat grinder on the next cover, you know.
1: Agreed. And this I always thought that if this is what you're going to do as your number as your story for number 1, there aren't very many I mean you could probably come up with alternatives, but they're going to be kind of variations on a theme. Superman getting the shit beaten out of him by Metallo. And so yeah, I agree with you. I mean, this is not ex- Adventures of Superman number 424 is a little bit more in line with what you would expect from, especially uh, like a uh, specifically an issue number one, you know it's right. So it is on its own merits, I think this is a this is a great cover, but when you think about it, I guess in the vocabulary of being the cover of the first issue, yeah, this is a little bit unusual. but speaking of page one, you know, John Byrne would do stuff like this. Uh, this sort of amped up, kicked up, sort of George Reeves thing where Superman crashes through a wall and kind of stands around a little bit, sucking air, he's got his his fists on his hips, and, and maybe people are op- opening fire on him and all this stuff. And it's just really neat. And you don't really get as much of that, at least in this issue, but certainly the crashing through a wall thing, it's just the he, Superman fan in me. I'm always gonna love that.
2: Yeah, I, I love the George Reeves breaking through the wall and on, on my Golden Age Superman shot, I was referred to it as Kool Aiding his way in there, you know, Kool Aid Manning his way through things. And <laughs> um, that that he, Superman is really good at that. He does not need a door. Um, and doors are annoying anyway because you have to turn sideways because of his massive shoulder girth. But but yeah, he just busts into the wall. And John Byrne is always really great at detail in his images, especially in this first issue, um, just really, really filling every panel with details. And so he could have just been piling through a wall with all the rubble. It would look great. But you also have like, you know, who's he wants this on this little table that are getting knocked over. And that might have been like, I don't know, some sort of bong or something on the, on the right there. I don't know. Um, yeah, so I don't know it, what it's that just, is. or or a coffee maker, or a bullhorn. Who knows? But um, but yeah, he's knocking over all this stuff. It looks really, really great. And um, all the rubble and little bits of wall coming out are really
1: great. Agreed. And after six months of the Man of Steel miniseries, the burn is basically... It's not as solid, I don't think, as it would be even, I don't know, maybe like eight months from this point. But he's already refining and perfecting the model for each character and when you think about it i mean we've got a very small cast of characters to begin with anyway in this issue and so i guess the more egregious deviations from what would become the john byrne model for these characters it's kind of a non-issue in this story because alfred e newman i mean jimmy isn't in this issue and so (laughs) the fact that he looks almost nothing at all like jimmy olsen well, that's not here to distract you. So overall, I just I, I just really enjoyed this. Honestly, I have a serious fixation for this entire era of Superman, starting right there with Man of Steel number one and then going right on through to Superman number 22 when John Byrne left the character. I'm not taking anything away from what came after that point, but I Those happen to years. think— Yeah, I mean that – I happen to think that is one of the most creatively fertile fertile periods of Superman's entire history, that stretch of time from like the middle of 1986 going through – I think it was the summer of 1988 and it, it was just a nice time is what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because you basically have, I mean, he's being held by Marv Wolfman for the first year of it, but you basically have one creative mind driving this universe. Byrne is doing two different series, at least, for the entire run of two years that he's doing that. And and he's laying the groundwork for everything that would come for a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that any of Superman's other half-starts and restarts have had that kind of opening for that opening run of solid bedrock being laid down um, on which to build. I, and I think, I think that's a, that's part of the problem with what we see in current comics. And I'm not going to, you know, be a new 52 naysayer or, or, or bash DC, but one of the things that the other character we've been, uh, we've been celebrating Batman has going for him right now is Scott Snyder as the United overseeing creative force driving the books. And Superman has not had that for the last, what is it? Over four years now. Uh, it's been a constantly shifting party. And when you do get one person kind of overseeing things like libdell it's kind of an iffy thing. And he eventually runs out of steam and they get somebody new. Um, so it's, this is a great, great period, and they were able to take what Byrne put down and do amazing things with it for years afterward. Once Jurgens became, you know, the the driving mind under under Mike Carlin's editorship. Um, so yeah, now I came across these books. I was not even collecting comics whenever this came out. I would have been this is eighty seven. I would have been eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have been sitting at home when i wanted to read comics i would read my spider-man collections Mm -hmm. um but i didn't actually start buying comics until i was 10 or 11 and then i didn't actually try to read any dc comics until the armageddon 2001 and uh, then later on the death of superman story so those two bits his uh, his annuals that take place in the future and his death were my first introductions to this era, I wouldn't go and make a concerted effort to read this until 2009, about five seconds before Mike and Jeffrey started doing their podcast. Um, so I, I just exposed myself to this. Not exposed myself because, you know, comics don't care if you're naked. Um, no, they
1: don't. Thank uh, God, I, by the way. <laughs> you don't want to know how much trouble I would have been in over the years. But I'll, uh, that's kind of a sticky story. I'll tell you some other time.
2: Okay, great. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, Don't let the story run too long, though. I wouldn't want it to crust over. Um, So whenever I was... Oh, crap, I forgot what I was saying. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. I was reading these in 2009, and that was my first time to really get into this era, and I had a great podcast to listen to about it along the way. So now that we're coming back several years later, I have a much larger, fuller, and deeper understanding of this era of Superman. And um, so this is one of my first times I actually go back and look at this issue as a as a critic rather than as a, you know, oh, boy, Superman comics kind of reader, you know. Agreed.
1: And oh jeez I could go on and on about the burn age, but, um, you know, maybe we need to move right along here. But before we slip over to uh, page two, I just want to say that, you know, once in a while, this wasn't. A constant thing with John Byrne. Let's be clear on that. You know, he didn't do this all the time. But every once in a while, Byrne would sneak in a little bit of a profile of Christopher Reeve. And not enough to be distracting. But if you if you see it, you see it. And right there on page one, it's just the shape of Superman's nose. I mean, I'm not trying to shit talk Reeve or anything, but he kind of had that really kind of fucked up, weird looking, skinny nose. And you mm-hmm. kind of see that on page one. Now, the shape of his head, the jaw, the brow, maybe not so much the cheekbones, but, you know, everything else, those things are are decidedly non reeve But the the set of the eyes, the cheekbones, and God knows that nose, those just seem very Reeve to me. And you would get things like that once in a while from John Byrne where – he wasn't using again he was not using Christopher Reeve as his model but he wasn't a, he wasn't trying to draw comics and pretend that he lived in a world where superman the movie was not the shit you know and so he acknowledges it but he's not a he never even tries to be a slave to it and i always thought that's that's a kind of a neat way to to handle the character and i think the same like similar things can be said of say John Bogdano, who I think was very influenced by at, at least at times he was he he let his George Reeves influence become a little bit more pronounced and I always thought that at least at points like in maybe specific panels Bob McLeod might have a little bit of a Kirk Allen type of a, a of a facial f- structure for Superman. And so you had all of these artists that were drawing their Superman and their, and every now and then they were throwing in live action references, but they were all different from one another. And it's just, it's weird that for as influential as Superman, the movie was even back then, it wasn't this sort of inescapable dogma that it looked like it had become circa 2006. 2007, eight, 9, you know, and through there, right. where literally it was all Superman the movie all the time, and it's it's like that's what the comics were trying to be, and I don't know. This to me always felt like it was a really good balance. So
2: yeah, it's interesting because this is eighty seven,
1: mm-hmm. so
2: Superman four is
1: not it's on the horizon. Not, yeah,
2: it's on the horizon. It's not. So that means that the Superman films were still a work in progress, and you know. Three was the latest thing that was out, and I guess the Supergirl movie was the latest thing that was out as well. Um, my point being that there was no time for them to become idolized and pedestalized like they have been since. Mm-hmm. So he can he can make his Superman look a little bit like Chris Reeve's because – that's who Superman is right now yet he's not aping the guy's face it's just as you were talking I was looking through just kind of flipping through the book here and a lot of his faces especially when he's not wearing the glasses a lot of his faces look like they could be not photo referenced Reeves face but just I'm gonna draw Christopher Reeves Superman right does that make sense it does
1: uh, but he's at the top of page two, panel one. You know, you've got Superman. He's standing in front of that hole in the wall he just crashed through. And the I guess the shape of his body, the his broad shoulders, he's got biceps the size of bowling balls. And his torso, he's got that sort of bodybuilder style sort of V-cut. And... He doesn't have – and my point in saying this is that he doesn't really have Christopher Reeve's build. Like I always got the idea that Gary Frankenstein, he was to the best of his ability trying to draw Chris Reeve in every single comic that he drew. And just looking at this, Burns' influence was, was supposed to be a little bit more of a traditional, idealized type of male figure. With Christopher Reeve's head, (laughs) you know, right. Rather than trying to draw literal Christopher Reeve on the page. And I'm not saying that Christopher Reeve couldn't bulk up because, I mean, if you like anyone who's seen Superman three. Which I think was probably Reeve at his overall just biggest. I mean, he wasn't exactly a, a skinny little beanpole in that movie. I mean, he had some serious definition to him, but at the end of the day, he's still not really a bodybuilder by trade right
2: whereas and, henry cavill i mean that could almost Lord. be a cavill body in a Rees head on the on that on that top of that page
1: yeah and i i'd buy that you know and it was it, oddly enough you know when when i find when smallville finally got underway and i was i was watching it it was basic it, it was stuff like this that actually made that a little bit made me a little bit of a Tom Welling fanboy in that we'd never really had an actor prior to then that just from a physical standpoint looked the part. Now, yeah, I think there's a very strong argument that Cavill is, he's definitely that kind of to the logical conclusion. But Tom Welling was the first that really had not just the face he had like the physical build you know you could buy the fact that this is more or less superman from the comics he's just got those incredibly broad shoulders mm-hmm. that same type of uh, v cut he's he's tall too. he's a big son of a bitch and it, it's just it's strange to think you know looking back at it it was 2001
2: before, before we had an actor who was actually built like superman
1: Right. And prior to that, like the a distant, distant number two was Gerard Christopher, who I, I know they called that the character that he played. I know they called him Superboy. He was not Superboy. He's, <laughs> he's Superboy just so nobody gets sued. He's really Superman, you know, let's so let's cut the bullshit. But he again, he kind of had a little bit of Reeve syndrome there where he wasn't. He was not. He he was by far, hands down, the best in terms terms of like physicality. But it's just the bar is pretty fucking low, is all I'm saying, right? Whereas Tom Welling really took it. He raised the bar, and then of course, I mean, I think at this point, it's it, it would be fair to say that Henry Cavill is definitive, at least for the time being. He's the best that there's ever been, but.
2: That... Yeah, I, I I like George Reeves's build. I mean, he kinda has a bit of a stockiness to him too, especially in the later seasons, but I do like his his girth, I guess, of shoulder. Um but you're right that Christopher Reeve, he had like a really toned body, but it was more like a, a dancer's body than than a I don't know, massive Kryptonian body. Um but it, it, you're right. It's kind of strange that for all of our decades of Superman history, none of our on-screen Superman have really been that build.
1: No, and to me, the only two that I think are like really, really good are Cavill and Welling. I mean, Brandon Ralph, an actor that I have very little use for, he has that that sort of hourglass-shaped figure, which is you know, if you're a tennis player or if you're a swimmer or, you know, one of those types of sports, you can get away with having having that type of a frame. But in terms of being, you know, a superhero, and I mean specifically Superman, you know, who's supposed to be big and powerful, you know, large and in charge and, you know, a guy that intimidates or it, he could intimidate everybody in the room if he wanted to. I really could not see that from Henry Cavill based on you know, his demeanor, his voice, his build, nothing about him has ever said Superman to me, ever. And at least, you know, Christopher Reeve, he had the facial appearance. I mean, it was a lot of people say that he's Kurt Swan Superman. And I, I roll with that. And, you know, God knows his acting. I mean, what am I going to say to criticize Christopher Reeve's acting, Right but other than uh, other than that i mean i'm at a real loss to think of very many actors who just scream superman to me and as is one of those reasons why when news uh, came down the pipeline that hey henry cavill he's going to play superman in in the, in the reboot i think my reaction was probably similar to like 99% of other people's where, where you know which is to say i don't even need to see the movie i already know he's going to be great you know, and in a weird kind of way, I feel like not to get too far off topic here, but I feel like that's something that Man of Steel has kind of suffered from, that people really haven't talked all that much about Henry Cavill's performance in that film, because we all accept that it's it, he's an amazing actor, he really bulked up for for the role, and there was never a moment on that, you know, in that entire film where he wasn't the character, and it, it's just it's weird that sometimes an actor can be hired for the role and he's so good at it that it's settled, and no one's really talking about it. I mean, you know, people can love the Chris Nolan Batman or they can hate him, but there was a lot of hype among fans about Christian Bale playing Batman. There was a lot of interest there. And it doesn't look like he disappointed all that many people, at least in Batman Begins. I mean, right. people, there were so many people that had their tongues right up Christian Bale's asshole during the entire summer of 2005.
2: It tasted like peanut butter.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, sort of this Reese's peanut butter cup type of treat, I guess, delight for Batman fans. I'm the chocolate Batman. Yeah. And it's weird that Cavill never got that. and, I mean, Brandon Routh was put under the fucking microscope. I mean, now I happen to think, you know, Wade weighed in the balance and found tragically fucking wanting, but he was nevertheless put under the microscope in 2006 in a way that Henry Cavill just wasn't in 2013. And it just, that's always been very strange to me. And anyway, I just want to throw that out there.
2: Yeah. The only thing I remember really about Henry Cavill is people complaining about his nationality um, back when he was cast. But, um... When, I, uh, when he was cast, I knew him from the Tudors. I saw him in Immortals, and that's a great prototype Superman role, because he's Theseus in that one, and he does a great job. Um, but then, I mean, to me, he is Superman. I mean, whether he walks around in the, the current Man of Steel suit, or he put on a version of, you know, an older suit, he would still be Superman to me. Um, I, but you're right, he doesn't... and and now we're going to this movie where everyone is just ready to hate on Ben Affleck. There's no way Ben Affleck could be a Batman. But as soon as Ben Affleck was cast, I was like, you know what? He looks exactly, exactly like Bob Kane's Bruce Wayne. Yes, he does. And that he's just like make, take taking those images and bringing them to 3D life. So... So I like our current casting of of heroes, but we're we're still on page two.
1: Yes, we are. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's just The minute I get you, I I get you on Skype, dude. It's just it's it's all Superman all the time. I'm so sorry. So
2: no, no, it's fine. It's fine. We we can take any tangents. But um, the only thing else I was gonna say, I think about page two is I wish the coloring had been different on the background there. Yeah. I mean, a Superman stands out, but. Only kind of because he's also in shadow. So I just kind of wish that all of that really great line work of the of the um, the lab that he's in had just been given a little bit of detail. Maybe it's supposed to all be in shadow. Maybe he's walking into a dark room and that's the effect
1: they're going for. But I don't know. Yeah, I, um, it, it's just a, it's a weird artistic effect. I'll give you that.
2: The one thing that's weird about this as a number one
1: mm-hmm.
2: is that we – and it's not that there's not enough information given to understand and enjoy the comic, but as a number one issue, we are coming into the middle of a story. We are coming into the, the end result of plot threads that have been sort of popping their heads up out of the water every now and then through the last couple issues of man of steel. Mm-hmm. And so it feels a little bit strange. I didn't, I didn't reread man of steel before this. So I was just going off memory. Um, But we come into this story, and he's investigating this lab, and the whole reason he's investigating this lab is because of things he learned from the the events of Man of Steel. So it feels a little bit odd in a number one issue.
1: Yeah, and I've actually got a a, a conspiracy theory on that, and if you think I'm wrong, I want you to say so, all right? But Mm -hmm. John Byrne, one time he gave an interview, and damned if I can remember – where It might have been Wizard. I, who the hell knows? I mean, the guy's talked about Superman so many times in so many interviews that it's kind of hard to keep track after a while. But he did say that what DC originally agreed to was a new number one. And then he he always makes a special point of saying, and then part of the way through the process, they decided there was going to be another number one. Meaning he's going to have what amounts to Man of Steel number one, and then he's going to have Superman number one. Uh... And so what I've always taken from this is there's a sense in which what we're actually reading is the seventh issue of the six-part Man of Steel miniseries here. Byrne, I think, was told that his... that basically what we're going to see is I guess to start his run on Superman, Superman number one, and that's what you could say is Man of Steel number one, and he would just keep right on trucking from there. And instead, what they what they did was said, actually, you know what? No, your first six issues that's a, that's going to be its own little mini series. We're going to give you another number one after that, and then you know you can just tear it up from there. And so what we're so this there's this imaginary dividing line that it has to exist because of the fact that let's face it, this is Superman number one, not Man of Steel number seven. And so
2: But they're right, the story structure is very much as if this were the seventh issue of an ongoing series. Yes. And he just spent the first six rapidly hopping
1: through time. Right. That I think is what's going on. And
2: and, and, and if the Marv Wolfman series and the team-up action comic series, if you imagine for a moment those two starting in sync with Man of Steel number one,
1: mm-hmm.
2: so you have Byrne doing uh, an origin series and a present-day series while Marv Wolfman is doing another present-day series, that would have been not unlike what they did in 2011. Yes, where you had Perez's present-day series and Morrison doing a flashback series. Because um, Morrison spent 12 issues in the past and then the 13th issue in the present. So the, the, there, there are some parallels there that I hadn't thought about until you said that. that that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. And like I said, I mean, there's nothing I can hang that on It's that definitely says I'm right. This is just a suspicion I've never been able to entirely – I've never been able to entirely shake So you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but well, I
2: imagine good. the plans were kind of fluid as they went along. I mean, I mean a huge upheaval like the crisis and infinite earths and then the rebooting of storylines that didn't just all come out crystallized as a plan one day at a desk. I'm sure they, they, they massaged that <laughs> as they went along much more than maybe we're willing to admit as we look back at it. Yeah. Um, so, interesting, okay, yeah Well, that that makes more sense then If he planned this to be the seventh issue of his story But editorial said, um, no Make your first present day issue be a new number one
1: Yeah And then, yeah And that's, it's an interesting way to run a railroad But, and, and the thing of it is it, it, In a weird kind of way, it's sort of how do, I, I forget how you pronounce this word Prescient, where mm-hmm you know, when you compare where the comics industry is nowadays, that is definitely the marketing formula that they would use today. That was kind of original, outside-the-box type of thinking in 1986.
2: Well, the whole idea of a new number one was, was crazy thinking in 1986.
1: Absolutely. But, you know, if you think about it, if ever there was a time to say, here's your new starting point, this is the time to do that. So, you know, kudos to I guess whoever, whoever made that decision, you know, that it, it respected the Superman numbering, like Superman Volume 1 numbering with Adventures of Superman. Mm-hmm. But it still wanted to have the, I guess, the historical input of a re- – and of course that's these days I think it's, it, it's completely fucking abused. I mean it feels like we don't really even have ongoing series anymore. We just have sort of protracted miniseries that occasionally relapse into the original numbering just to say, hey, guys, it's still there. But I don't know. It's it's kind of aggravating. But one of the hallmarks, though, of this new era, you can kind of see it at the bottom of page two, the very last panel. Superman says to himself, he's had a sort of extended uh, inner monologue here, but in the last panel he says, in any case, I think and feel as a human being, not as a Kryptonian. And... This is one of those, I guess, character threads that it made all the sense in the world to me when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. As an adult, it's harder for me to buy into that. The idea, not so much that he thinks of himself as not as Kryptonian. I could actually totally believe that because what emotional context does he really have for regarding himself as Kryptonian? I don't think he would view himself as human, though. He can do things that a human can't. He can see things that a human can't. He can hear things that a human can't. You know, he's got an insight on, really, I would say, the entire human race. And he can see spectrums of, you know, the entire light spectrum that, you know, that we know about and maybe things that we don't know about. All of that stuff is visible to Superman. And it seems a bit much to me to suggest that a character who sees what he does, who hears what he does, who, who does what he does, would ever stoop to regarding himself as human. Because the one thing he's not at this point is human. He's coming at life, I guess, from a fundamentally human context. But there came a day when his powers were completely fully developed, and he stopped seeing the world as a human, even if he was still, for lack of a better word, relating to it as a human. You know, he's got that and, as his background.
2: And see, that's, that's more how I read it. I have viewed it as more of a cultural statement as how he relates to the rest of the world, um, that having grown up eating pancakes and working a farm – And working as a reporter and, you know, lusting after all the pretty girls in the cheerleader outfits. Everything else that that young human guys do, um, he feels like a human, even if you're right. He does not at all perceive the world physically the way the rest of humanity does. Um, In fact... I'm surprised that Byrne didn't really play much with the loner aspect of that, which is, which of course I'm saying that as a 2015 comics fan, it seems like the loner aspect of Superman is what always gets played up these days. Yeah. To, to, to whether that be a good or bad thing, but it happens a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, I saw it as more of a cultural thing. And, it's interesting with this particular version of Superman because he's had his powers and he's been operating as a superhero for seven years now. I think the timeline is yes, but it was only last Tuesday that he found out he was an alien. Pretty much. And and that's a really odd order to take events compared to, I think every other version of the Superman origin that's out there.
1: Right. And I mean I think it's pretty clear that what Byrne was going for in all of that, you know, there was a story that he was telling and the sequence in which Superman kind of goes on that journey obviously it it starts coming to fruition here and the context of it would be completely different if he found out at the age of 18 that uh, that that he's an alien and so I thought when I was analyzing the story, because I did, I mean, I obsessed over the way John Byrne kind of crafted this story, where it overlapped with what you might call the traditional Superman mythos and where it crucially diverged. And I kind of liked the idea of Superman coming face to face with this reality as an adult, because when you think about it, I mean, it's, this is something that he would have to, you know, investigate, work on and kind of discover in time. And I guess I just find it very easy to believe that it's not necessarily something that he'd have all the answers to at the age of, you know, 16. Now, in Smallville, he had maybe not everything, but he had a, a, the big picture of it by about the time he was 16. And that was, again, it was crucial to the story that they were telling that he finds out at that age. And so that part is OK, but. I just, I really admired the way that John Byrne paced himself in this story because I, I, I just, I, I couldn't escape the the sensation that if this was in the hands of a of a lesser writer, a lesser creator, I don't know that the full dramatic impact of this would have been would have been felt. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. You know what just occurred to me? What's John Byrne is emulating the golden age here Hmm. because the only other Superman who found out he was an alien well into his career was 1949 Superman. Because that Superman went through the entire decade of the forties being Superman, but it wasn't until they did the Krypton story. And I want to say 1949 or 1950, maybe it was 1948, but right there at the end of the forties, that's when he found out about Krypton and about being an alien and all the other stuff.
1: As a result of Kryptonite, too.
2: As a result of the first uh, comic book story of Kryptonite, yeah. So um, I never put those two together, or if I did, I forgot. But of all the things that John Byrne did that was new and different, that is actually a Golden Age trope. And that just makes me like it more. (laughs) Right. you You know how I am about that era
1: yeah I, uh, yeah I think most of uh, most of your listeners are, are very, very clear on that but you know it's a it's a really good point because I do remember just so just so you can have a little bit of extra credence for that and now I, I again like I say I mean John Byrne has done so many interviews so many times about Superman it's hard to know it's hard to remember where exactly he said it but I know for a fact I don't know where or when but I do know for a fact he said you know, the what he wanted to do was basically do a very Jerry Siegel Joe Shuster type of Superman,
2: and someone who grew into his powers like the mythos developed early on,
1: right? And and that I think that's really the only interpretation of what he said that makes sense, because this is not the the sort of Franklin Roosevelt New Dealer type of Superman at all. He's in fact, he's – I think this Superman, at least the way he's been presented so far, is very apolitical, whereas I think that the Siegel Superman to begin with. People who want to call that Superman a socialist, I'm not completely sure I agree with that, but I do, I, I do think they've got a leg to stand on in that. And
2: – It has its moments even if it's not overall. Right, yeah. Under, you, that, under that banner.
1: Yeah, you can't really escape the flavor of it even if he's not necessarily full-on socialist, right? So, you know, quoting Marx and all, all of that. And so when he said he wanted to do a very Siegel Schuster type Superman, the only way of processing that that makes any sense to me whatsoever is his powers to some degree, kind of, and more importantly, his, I guess, his biography, you know, no Superboy. And then the way he went about discovering his origins not so much, you know, by traveling back in time as a sort of wraith-like phantom and visiting Krypton that way, but more that he. This is a discovery he made as an adult. When, when you think about it, he's. This is the most stable he's ever been. This is a good time for him to find out about this, as opposed to a moody teenager, right? Right. So that I. So just to kind of reinforce your point, I think I don't think that's accidental. So. And
2: then he's able to put it in the context of other people that he knows are alien or involved with aliens. He mentions the Green Lanterns and the Hawkmen, so uh, it's 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 neat. It's it's a new wrinkle to this I hadn't really thought of until just now. But um, but then he finds out that um, he's in the base of a super creeper. Yes, <laughs> somebody who's been spying on him for who knows how long.
1: Indeed, and you know the thing about it, you know, rereading this now. We have a term for this sort of a thing these days, and it just didn't really exist as such back in the 80s. But we would call Emmett Vale, and that's who we're talking about here, we would call Emmett Vale in modern parlance a stalker, or I guess in more kind of, even more modern than that, uh, like you were saying, creeper. And this was... Again, it's just – it's one of those things that it's – this is an idea that I think is a little bit ahead of its time, and I'm not saying it, it, it wasn't successful in its time. Obviously, it was, but it's one of those things that it's aged incredibly well, incredibly well mm-hmm. because I like the – I really like the concept of Superman being more or less universally accepted once he goes public. Superman is the character that needs to get a pass on that because something, something Superman. But it does stand a reason that there would be a very small minority of people out there. And I mean, in the 1980s, I think the easiest caricature shorthand would be the sort of paranoid, delusional, rabid, uh, anti-communist. You know, Ray, even Reagan is not far enough to the right for your taste. I mean, we're talking just like way over the top sort of paranoid extremist. And that guy would never accept or for that matter fully trust someone like Superman, major outsider, implicitly alien. It's just, it's implicit. And someone with... The right type, the right paranoid, delusional personality type coupled with, let's face it, some incredible fucking brains. I mean, love or hate him at veil the man's a genius. And you know what? I could totally picture him being able to stalk Superman without him being fully aware of it. Being able to steal Superman's uh, ship d- and all of these other things. It's not a stretch, you know. And like I say, if anything, this is only more believable today even than it was in the 80s. And it was definitely – it would have been easy to believe in the 80s. It's just easier still today. So.
2: They play with the idea of Superman not being trusted only rarely in comics earlier than this. Yes. I mean the Silver Age did like the occasional imaginary story – That had a situation that would allow For that sort of thought Um Most of the time in the Silver Age Whenever Superman had problems And was being menacing Um they were just annoyed with him And wanted him out of town There there was never any Like um Or or they would make fun of him Wow he's a super joke Or you know he's pulling a super boner or something to, To use Silver Age parlance But um but, yeah, this, this was definitely, like you said, one of those things that would not be too common. And it's only, I think, now in our, our you know, I, I honestly get tired of hearing this phrase a bit, but it really just the, it fits the, the post-9-11 world that we're in, mm-hmm. um, that the idea of completely mistrusting I mean, not even a little bit mistrusting, but completely mistrusting uh, outsiders has become the way stories are told. Um, so this is a little bit different now. Um, I do think it's odd that this guy is dead when we first see him. It's, it's not odd in a bad way. It's just an interesting way to tell the story. This this doctor and and I, I forgot his name. You said it a second ago. Emmett Vale. Emmett Vale. He's crucial to this story, and he was he was the one that was making the plot threads happen in previous issues. Superman finally catches up to him. The guy's already been murdered. Yeah, that's 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 not the expected way for the story to go, and I think it's an interesting choice for John Byrne to to take.
1: I did too, and you know it, it's not like. John Byrne and the rest of the creative teams were at a loss for ideas. I mean, I think, like I say, this is one of the most creatively fertile periods of Superman's entire history. I put the two-year stretch, this John Byrne two years, actually over two years, stretch uh, his run on Superman, I put that up against pretty much anything from Superman's entire history. That's how good this is. But I do feel like there's a little bit of a missed opportunity here that, you know, with the with sorry, I just knocked over my e-sig here. Uh with the big reboot that happened, one of the obvious casualties in Superman's Rogues Gallery is a sort of recasting of Lex Luthor where the threat that Luthor poses now is I guess that sort of there's not even really a word for it, so I'm just going to invent a term. I'm just going to call it sort of corporate tyranny. You know, this idea of these absurdly huge corporate conglomerates basically having not even so much at this point like a uh, an employee base, they just have serfs, you know? And the idea of Luther as a sort of modern-day Gordon Gecko type of... Um, I don't know, Duke of Metropolis, you know, a corporate Duke, as opposed to, you know, just some guy who runs a company. No, he's this sort of weird, tyrannical overlord. And that, as interesting as that story might be, it does come at the expense of Luther, the renegade scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, the cave, the, the, you know, the guy that hides in a cave and comes up with all of these you know, wacky inventions to menace Superman and all of that. And when you think about it, Emmett Vale could have taken that place in Superman's rogues gallery and been the scientific genius gone wrong who comes up with all of these elaborate death traps and super weapons and all these other things. And it's pretty much stillborn right here in this issue that it's obviously it's not going to happen.
2: Interesting that you say that, because Hamilton kind of is that for five minutes. Yeah, he is the new evil scientist before he becomes basically a much more balanced Professor Potter.
1: Right, and I, I think Superman demonstrably he can use. It's not to say he needs, but he can use a Professor Potter, you know, somebody who can, you know, come up with bullshit for him, as as far as you know, gadgets and stuff. But also somebody who who can, let's face it, need rescuing, you know, a brilliant person who can come up with these impossible situations that only Superman can help him with. And so from a story standpoint, I like that. But there's a darker side to that, too. And especially in, you know, like post-atomic bomb, I still think even in the 80s, you know, the, this is the era of the decline of the Soviets and everything that was going on with that. I still think that's, that was, I, I, shit, I think it's relevant even now. But it was still relevant even then. And again, I'm not criticizing John Byrne because I kind of feel like that's a little bit above my pay pay grade. It's kind of like editing J.R.R. Tolkien. Shut the fuck up. Who are you to edit him, you know? So that's to me, that's it's as inappropriate to second guess John Byrne. But that having been said, I do think that that's one of the losses of the Byrne reboot that I think that I, that I do kind of miss. I mean that and going's on with the legion, I think are two things that we lost with the Burn reboot that maybe we could have I don't know, maybe that maybe we shouldn't have been so hasty is what I'm saying.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean there are some really big changes that happened here that could not be easily undone. And, and you're right that the the change of Luthor and the loss of that kind of a role was one of them. Um, I think it's been said before, probably by us, <laughs> that the loss of Superboy was another one. But, um, but that's a topic for another time.
1: Um, one of the things, and this, I, I swear, it does relate to this issue, I promise. One of the things that uh, Byrne did, And it didn't last, but one of the things that he did, and you actually see a reference to it in uh, the third panel on page three. Basically, it's this is one of those moments when I think Superman went a little too real world. He said that basically somebody's been devoting a great deal of time and effort to studying me, including obtaining some photographs. That's something I've been very careful to avoid. I don't want to risk anyone back in my old hometown of Smallville recognizing a picture of Superman as the man they knew as Clark Kent. And from a again, if you look at this from a strictly rational standpoint, someone like in the real world, someone's gonna know. Probably a bunch of someones that you went to school with. They're gonna be able to look at a picture of you as an adult and say, hey, I know that guy. Yeah. This has got to be a gimme. I'm sorry. You know, just don't overthink it.
2: It's one of those things about Byrne is that he tried to come up with explanations for all of those gimmies. Things that were so ingrained in the mythos as to be just accepted every day. That's just part of reading a Superman comic. He tried to come up with explanations for all that and some to, to, to greater success and some to a lesser. Um, this is one of those things that when I read it, I was like, huh, I forgot about that. I guess. Okay. But then they'll never talk about it again because Jimmy also takes pictures of Superman all the time. Yeah. And his death is plastered all over the newspapers Yes Um, And it's never thought of again And I actually really like The way Man of Steel the film Addressed this exact same issue That they just take it as read That a certain population of Smallville Is going to understand that Clark is Superman And that's just That's their thing They don't tell people
1: Yeah And In a weird kind of way That I find a little bit more believable. But again, I mean, it's just it's one of those things that there's there've got to be some gimmies. And I don't think it necessarily benefits the material to overthink it in that way. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to get going on too many other tangents because we're only on page three. And (laughs) so obviously there's a there's just there's a lot there's a lot to be said here. So. In any case, uh, page four is actually pretty straightforward. It's basically Superman checking out other clues and whatnot in the lab. And it's, I think, pretty mechanical stuff. He's basically checking fingerprints. He finds an acid acid tank that, of all things, has human bone in it. And he basically makes the decision, you know what, there's way too much bullshit going on here that I don't understand. I don't have time to work through all of this stuff right now. So he does a very Superman type of thing. He basically digs this chunk of land out of the earth and flies it up to upper orbit. So it it, the vacuum of space... Number one, it's going to keep it out of everybody's reach. But number two, or most people's reach, but number two, the vacuum of space is going to basically preserve the scene of the crime, as it were. So that way he he can come back to it later. And we get this moment where... He lifts this huge landmass out of the ground. And my question for you is, it's not, I don't think it's ever made completely explicit, but I think this is the closest we come. Superman makes the observation that I fly objects the same way I fly myself. Not, uh, it, it's done by sheer force of will and not by strength. He's not using his muscle power to lift heavy objects once he's flying. And that's why this chunk of land isn't splintering around him. It's why he can catch an airplane. He can do, or he could pick up a building if he wanted to. And, you know, things like that. And so my question for you, just, there's not a right or wrong answer. I just want your opinion. Is this some, is this a power that Superman has always had even back in the pre-crisis? Or is this something that John Byrne, in your opinion, kind of invented out of whole cloth to explain the impossible physics that we, we all expect Superman to be able to do? But unfortunately, the laws of physics, they are what they are. You know, If Superman were to actually lift up a building, it's, it, it'll either fall apart around him or it might telescope him directly back down into the ground. What's not going to happen is he's going to be able to just pick up a building and then fly fly around with it. So
2: we yeah, see him do, those, huh? Yeah, I was going to say it's one of those things about, about uh, superhero tropes is when someone has super strength, they can lift something up by a corner of that thing. And the, the thing about matter is that it's a complex structure. Mm-hmm and you br- you pick up a corner of that thing, the rest of the mass is going to want to stay where it is. Mm-hmm. So unless, you know, not to get too physics but unless the bonds between the stuff that you're picking up on the corner and the rest of the object, unless those bonds are stronger than the gravitational pull holding it down and the inertia that makes it want to stay there, then the stuff's going to stay right where it is. So he they, he does this little quick little explanation of how he's going to pick all this up first by f- creating a fused bowl underneath mm-hmm. so that when he does lift up with his strength initially, the whole thing comes up with him. And then I think the whole psionic flying thing is, um, is just another way to explain how he can move stuff without having, in order to lift an object, your feet have to press down into the ground. Yes. And he's not doing that. So I think he's actually explaining two different things here on this page. Um, But again, in such a way that either you take it as read from here on out, that that's what he's doing, or the writers just ignore it because it's almost never brought up again. That I can recall, and yet I do remember having conversations with comics fans in the mid-2000s that this is how Superman does stuff. It's all psionic. All of Superman's powers are psionic, not physical.
1: Right, and this does kind of lead into one of those crucial differences between between Marvel and DC, right? And I would almost want to compare it to this. like If you're watching a, a, a Chris Nolan movie and somebody's wearing a hat, and then that guy gets punched in the face, his hat's going to fall off. Mm-hmm. If you're watching an old-timey Republic serial, an adventure serial, and the hero, he's wearing a hat, and then he gets punched in the face, somehow his hat is going to stay on.
2: Or, or, or if Batman's in a fight, and, and, and someone actually accidentally tears his cape off of him, they'll cut down to an outside shot and cut back, and his cape will be back on.
1: Exactly, <laughs> and in the Marvel universe, you punch a guy in the face, his hat's going to fall off. You know there was I I forget it was some crossover, I forget what, but just to kind of emphasize, I guess the differences between these between these two different concepts, um, these two different universes. Superman was, and keep in mind, we're talking about the Marvel universe here. He's flying around. And then at one point, I think he actually does like pick up a, an airplane, or he picks up a car, or something like that. And somehow the thing doesn't just fall apart. He's able to to pick it. Uh, he's able to basically catch it. Reed Richards is watching this whole thing. He's like, "How the fuck is this even possible? This 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 is not possible. This thing should be falling apart in his hands. How is how is he doing this?" And keep in mind, we're talking pre-crisis here. So, and it was basically the writing acknowledging the fact that. The Marvel, universe, uh, the Marvel universe operates on fairly standard rules of science and physics, you know, and uh, and the occasions when it doesn't, it's really the writer's ignorance on the subject that that it, that it's not working the way it should. But we're supposed to assume. Insert Insert Stanley radiation reference here. Exactly. And the dc universe it doesn't necessarily have the same laws of physics that the real world operates under i mean earth prime isn't necessarily the same level of reality as is earth one and this is one of those things that i think is so clear and evident about pre-crisis comics and indeed that's one of the things that i like about it you know Metropolis. It's not a surrogate for New York. It's its own special enchanted kingdom, and Superman's the you know this mythic knight that yeah he can do all of these amazing things that bear absolutely, positively no resemblance to reality. And I don't mean flying through the air. I mean in that that Fleischer animated short, uh, the Mad Scientist. Mm-hmm. Where the building bends? Yeah, the building bends, which it wouldn't do. And then Superman somehow catches it, which he wouldn't be able to do. And then he can somehow, without reinforcing the foundation, just prop it right back up and it stands right up. It's – the DC universe is a Republic serial. It's not reality the way most people think of it. You know, When the hero, he's wearing a hat and then he gets punched in the face, his hat stays on because that's just the way the reality works. And – I feel, and you know, to be fair, you know, to pin all of this on John Byrne, he's not the one that made that decision. He's not the one. His fingerprints are nowhere on Crisis on Infinite Earths. That was not a decision that he made. He's basically left, I guess, to to deal with the situation that he's inherited. But it does kind of make me wonder if this is we we get kind of unnecessarily elaborate explanations like that so that John Byrne can basically do the stuff that he would want to do, these very pre-crisis types of stunts. And it still fits inside of a vaguely more realistic type of universe that the DC universe is trying its dead level best to be. You know, What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, really I think John Byrne just gave himself the mission of trying to explain so many things that were just – Understood to happen. I do like your comparison between the DCU and a uh, Republic serial because, I mean, DC comics are really the stuff of legend and the stuff of myth, whereas Marvel comics are more the stuff of adventure soap opera. Yes, and um, until you know the the last decade or so, there there's there's often been that distinction between the two. But John Byrne, I think when he sat down, it's like, okay, 1986, this is the modern era. We're not stuck in the 60s anymore. That 20 years ago stuff was for, you know, some readers of today would view it as being for kids. So let's go about trying to give some explanations of stuff that we all liked having. We all liked reading about it as kids. We still want to be able to do those things. So let's just, you know, pay lip. Not necessarily pay lip service, because I think he meant to do more than that. But let's come up with in-universe explanations, things that make sense for stuff we did before. Um, one of the things that Superman does here that I I kind of chuckled at was um, on the bottom of page 4, when he's looking at that bloody bony acid, he says, It's not a strong enough corrosive to eat through the metal walls of the container, and then he puts his hand in it and splashes around and says, Or to harm me. <laughs> What if he had been wrong? (laughs)
1: Yeah, I assumed that he was making that uh, that observation based on that's a when you think about it for you know that being acid that's a pretty thin container that it's that that it's housed in, and so I think again based on nothing but what I think what I think his logic was this metal can't be more than an inch or two at most thick. And if this acid isn't eating through that, there's no way it's even gonna uh, give me so much as irritated skin. And so yeah, it, was
2: probably, it was probably an educated guess, but I just I thought it was just really funny. It's like ah, oh, that is, it's not harm, enough. it's not it's not it's not bad enough to hurt someone, and I know because I just tried it. But anyways, we, we we get into our first Clark Kent bits of the issue. And Clark is wearing a jogging suit. Yes. <laughs> that does nothing to hide the, oh my God, beefcake musculature that he has going on there. Um, it, it's just, it's, it's one of the key differences between um, previous Understandings of Clark and the thing that John Byrne was trying to do, which 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 was effective for so long and I think still is effective today, is to make Clark Kent a believable person. One of the big differences – I think one of the big things that Stan Lee did with Spider-Man is that he created a char- – his goal was to create a character where Superman wasn't pretending to be Clark Kent – Superman was Clark Kent and had all of those social foibles that he pretended to have. That's Spider-Man. That's what Stanley did with Spider-Man. He made, a, he made a Superman who really was a socially awkward Clark Kent.
3: Hmm.
2: Here, John Burns doing something a little bit like that but in a different direction, uh, bringing Clark Kent out. And whereas Peter really did have all those spider muscles going on underneath, but he never really had the occasion to use them to affect his social life, Clark – has all this body going on. (laughs) Yeah. And, and Lois is there in basically the equivalent level of sexiness, you know, a big beefy guy, muscular guy with, with, with jogging clothes that, you know, cover it, but still show it that sort of sexual appeal. Mm -hmm. Lois has the same thing going on with her little short running shorts and headband and tank top going on. So, You've got this really sexy couple jogging through the park and yet the whole time she's expressing how she's really only barely tolerating his advances and she's not put off by his romantic interest but she's also not returning it and and she's just trying to make that very clear. It, 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 it's kind of surprising just how forward Clark is with her. He's like so I'm going to keep flirting with you and you're cool with that, right? Because my goal here is to get you to like me. She's like, yeah, whatever. You know, I don't mind, but it's not going to (laughs) happen.
1: And you know, like I got to tell you on that note, this is one of the reasons why I'm a huge Lois and Clark fan. That show. I mean, it took little moments like this and it kind of made a little bit of a franchise out of it, especially in the first two seasons of the show where you had these these characters that they were having this, you know, the, these types of exchanges with one another, and then of course there there came a point when they truly were dating. Now, it wasn't something that Lois was, you know, deigning to do anymore. She really was interested in Clark, but the reason that you buy it is because of the fact that, and this is going to turn into a criticism in just a moment, but the reason that you buy it is Dean Kane played Clark very differently from the way he played Superman. And I don't know that he really gets a lot of credit for that, but he plays Clark as this very self-assured, confident, easygoing, gentle man. Whereas Dean Cain's Superman is quieter, he's more reserved, he's stiffer, he has different body language, he's usually uh, folding his arms and... He's just not completely comfortable in his own skin as Superman. You know, if you I like to
2: think he's he's putting on a front. He knows the way people would expect a superhero to be, and so he's trying to put up that facade as part of his distinguishing between his, you know, covering up the fact that he's Clark Kent. He's trying to be this this his physical attitude as superman is his mask exactly that and, and you're right he's not very comfortable with it
1: there's a, there's this moment it's like the it's at the very bottom of page six you know clark is you know wandering over to lois he's got this big smile on his face his arms are outstretched hey give me a break and that is not the way he talks to lois in just a few pages as superman he's very he's just quieter. He's a little bit, he chooses his words a little more carefully Mm -hmm. and he's going pretty far out of his way to sort of affect a different personality type as Superman, you know, the strong silent type, whereas Clark is Mr. Friendly, Mr. Outgoing and everything. And so there's still a very dynamic contrast between the two personalities. It's just, it, it operates, I guess, on a different paradigm than it did, the pre-crisis era. And this same is replicated, I think, in, in Lois and Clark. In fact, if anything, Lois and Clark only really amplifies it. And by the way, just for clarity's sake, I mean, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, the TV show from the 90s, that's what I'm talking about here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one of those things that it, it made the show so easy for me to, to believe in. But at the same time that I'm observing all of this, character stuff in this comic i mentioned a minute ago that there's there's a criticism coming here and well here it is at the bottom of page seven clark thinks to himself his uh, inner monologue and again a very kind of christopher reeve sort of look here with the shape of his nose and his smile and everything He's, he thinks to himself it's tough playing this waiting game with Lois she's easily the most blah 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 and I know she'd just fall into my arms if she knew I'm also Superman and that that's where I got to get off the bus that John Byrne is driving here because this is a Lois Lane who's interested in Superman insofar as he's he's newsworthy he's gonna he's a guaranteed uh, spot on the front page of the Daily Planet. But her interest in Superman, it's completely professional. It's not personal. It's certainly not romantic. She's, I guess, interested in Superman later in this issue, I guess, in a very universal brotherly love type of way. You know, it, he's obviously been fucked up a little bit by Metallo, but she's not romantically invested in superman i don't really get that from this this version of of lois where i mean there may have been instances where she would you know kind of playfully flirt with superman i don't i've i i just never never got the impression that she was truly interested in him. does that make sense
2: yeah, it does, and I, I was I was having similar thoughts when I was reading this. Is that I, I was like, I don't really feel that she's like that, and so the way I, I read it in my brain is um, that Clark might actually be misunderstanding women here a little bit. Agreed. That um, he's well, what's happening on a couple levels. The way I read it, is that Byrne is acknowledging the old dynamic by putting it in Clark's head as an expectation that he's actively trying to work around and avoid, but that Clark is actually mistaken and that Lois wouldn't just fall head over heels if Superman said, hey, you want to come up and see some of my etchings? Um, She wouldn't necessarily jump at that, except maybe out of professional curiosity. Um, And so, yeah. I, it was not a it was not a throw me out of the story moment it was uh huh i I think Clark's
1: mistaken there <laughs> agreed, and i that's probably the better way to put it then you know and that's i don't know i'm i i think I like that better than this just being you know burn maybe having a brain fart or something i don't know so but anyway, from there, you know the worm turns, they come across a what looks to be a bank robbery in progress on page eight. And that's where Metallo gets unveiled. And from the get go, what we, what I think we can assume just at a casual glance is that if you're familiar with Metallo from uh, Action Comics number 252, and certainly the Metallos from whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow and various other parts of the Bronze Age this is not that character. Now, I guess my question is, what are your thoughts about that?
2: Um, One of the things that I thought was really interesting in my Silver Age reading is that John Corbin dies at the end of his story. Um, The Metallo that got reused in the Bronze Age Mm-hmm. is actually a different character Yes. Uh, to the one that had been used some 15, no, more like 20 years earlier. Um, but yeah, this is a very different version of the guy. Now, the 1950s Metallo did look like a dude mm-hmm. and had the metal endoskeleton going on, but he did not look like this dude. and this guy is a sort of i don't know he's got the silver hair older guy look going on but he's also ripped all to hell so uh, i don't know if he has like old guy tight skin look going on over those muscles or or what but uh but yeah very very different character and i've actually never read any bronze age metallo so I don't have firsthand experience on how to compare the two, but I did just bring it up on Mike's amazing world, and I see the whole green and orange thing he has going on, uh, where he looks like Trap Jaw from He Man, in the face. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> well, it, it, it's true. <laughs> this is this is not that guy. <laughs> not a bit. And, and I wonder if, you know, later on he loses a lot of his skin, and he looks a bit like the Bronze Age Brainiac redesign with the you know the whole metal white metal terminator thing going on, but not exactly Terminator, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Um so I'm wondering if whenever Byrne brings in Brainiac later, if he understood doing this metallo story that making this metallo look a bit like that Brainiac, that he would have to do something different for his brainiac when he brought him in later.
1: I would assume so, yeah. And even if it was just you know, if he'd wanted to go with a robotic Brainiac, he would have painted him pink or something like that. I don't know. Something. So, yeah. Brainiac. Sorry, <laughs> you said pink. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's
2: true. My, my my bisexual daughter would hopefully laugh at that joke. But um. <laughs> but anyways, so or, or, or you know what she does? Whenever I make a pun now, she leaves the room and tells me to go to hell so um because <laughs> she's like she's tired of my puns dad jokes evidently are no longer funny <sighs> anyways we used so to be cool what happened I, I i used to be cool i know at some point i know i used to be cool she told me last night i was no longer cool and fun of course you know we, we get along great but but yeah i'm no longer cool
1: <laughs> well the uh from there i mean we get a there's a lot less to comment on at least in this little stretch of pages here where it's it's basically superman and metallo kicking the shit out of each other but kind of peppered throughout all of this we get these sort of oliver stone style flashbacks sort of intercut with the narrative where you'll have goings on with metallo and lois or metallo and superman and then you get Uh, just a quick flash of metallo's origin and that i think is a kind of an interesting way of of uh, telling the story but at the bottom of page 11 the very last uh, panel here superman gets smacked through the bank and then ends up crashing into a uh, it looks like a macy's delivery truck and he says to himself He must have been pulling his punch before. Speaking of Brainiac, he must have been pulling his punch before. I can't remember the last time I was hit that hard. It was almost as if my invulnerability faded on me for just a moment there. And this is where we start getting a little bit of an insight into other things about the Superman mythos that have changed in the transition from pre-crisis to post-crisis. One of which is, And I don't think this was a permanent feature of Kryptonite, but at least at this point in the game, Kryptonite had a sort of debilitating effect on Superman. It wasn't enough that it sort of knocked him on his ass the way it did when he was exposed to it in the pre-crisis era. Here, it not only knocks him on his ass, but if he's exposed to it for long enough— it's as though it starts robbing him of his powers and my question for you is like how do you like that dynamic you know is that is that good for the character or does it even matter is this bad i mean how should kryptonite affect superman
2: um you know it's weird because it, it's I, I'm still in that Silver Age era where where things are kind of morphing. So I've seen a, a Kryptonite do him differently, and then of course there's Tom Welling where he he gets within camera frames length of Kryptonite and suddenly he can't do anything except writhe on the ground in agony. Um, I like Kryptonite weakening Superman and robbing him of his powers and turning him into basically a worm so long as it's really close and, like, this happens gradually over time. Like, so a few seconds of Kryptonite, he's like, oh, my God, no. But then, like, five minutes of close exposure and it's really, really bad. Um, But I do think it should always be temporary. And as soon as he gets away from it, he, he heals. Maybe slowly... Maybe quickly, but he heals um supergirl's first exposure to kryptonite and the current mythos did a really big number on her that did not go away by the end of the issue. She had to deal with that for a little while um, and that's cool for a story, but it's not something you can it's not something that's easily done over and over again every time they get exposed to kryptonite, yeah. So you either have to really limit your use of Kryptonite in stories, which I'm a fan. I, I, I'm in favor of Kryptonite being a limited-use thing. Um, or you have to ignore the fact – Oh, sorry. My mic fell over. Or you have to ignore the fact that it's that bad of a deal to him. Um, but I don't think you should rob him of his powers. I read that as just like may, – maybe awkwardly scripting, but just burn – expressing Superman trying to understand what this thing was that he just felt like. Usually he can take a punch, but he was not able to take that one just now. So there must be something else going on here because this guy has no clue what kryptonite is. And so it's, it's his first understanding of what might be going on.
1: All right. Well, the reason I ask is because one of my favorite episodes of Lois and Clark ever was the green, green glow of home from the first season. And if you're blanking on that, basically the shtick of that episode is Lois and Clark returned to Smallville ostensibly to investigate a, a sort of unscheduled EPA dig at a, a, at a neighbor's uh, farm, one of the Kent family's uh, neighbors. And what Clark eventually discovers is he was called there by his parents so that he can get an eye he he can get a look at some strange meteorite, this green glowing rock that they found, and what the fuck is this and of course i th- I think we can all kind of figure out what exactly that green glowing rock was, but in the few minutes that he was exposed to it, uh, yeah, it fucked him up, no question, and it basically gave him the symptoms. I would want to compare it to the flu. There was a period of a few hours there where he had very flu-like symptoms mm-hmm. but the sort of 24-hour legacy of kryptonite is that for all intents and purposes he's got no powers and so he's he spends a good bit of the episode just sort of running around without any powers at all and it's kind of the neat little revelatory moment once he gets his powers back you instantly think oh superman's gonna kick some ass well it's not quite that simple because hey it's got to be a show right but I kind of like that concept that when I was a kid that this isn't something that, you know, you you put the kryptonite back in the lead line box and instantly he's back to being Superman. It's no, it's not that easy for me. He needs time. His body needs time to heal from an experience like that. And, and the, the, I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead.
2: Well, they use the description of how it's it's leaching his cells of their solar energy. So theoret- theoretically, he would need time to rebuild that. And if you had him in close contact with Kryptonite, let's say for half an hour, on the night side of the planet, then theoretically you would have a sick and depowered Superman for at least as long as it takes for him to get back in touch with the sun. And maybe he'd have to take a bath in it for a while, a bath in sunlight. Yeah. I remember that episode. It's one of the few episodes of Lois and Clark that I've seen because I'm actually doing a rewatch and I'm, I'm very early days in the show right now, but I have seen that one that, that was, I like that take, but again, do you think that that is something that they could do again? The next season, the next time it comes across kryptonite, in other words.
1: Yeah. And I don't want to spoil anything for you, but that, that comes up and it actually becomes, it's sort of, it becomes sort of tragic irony at one point in the narrative that it's because of the fact that he was exposed to kryptonite. There's something he tries to do that he's not able to do. And so because of that, somebody dies, you'll know it when you see it. And I kind of liked that as a concept. Now, like you were saying, if that's the way you're going to do kryptonite, you can't have a whole lot of kryptonite stories because you've just established that it takes them about a day or at the very least several hours for him to really get back to normal after something like that. And that's not necessarily conducive to adventure storytelling, you know? And so I can understand that you wouldn't want that as a, as a, you you don't, you you don't want to have to be bound by that as sort of the rules of your universe that you've just set up. So I get that. And I think Smallville did a, a decent job of kind of splitting the difference where frequently Clark needed a, a few seconds to catch his breath and then he could swoop back into action, you know, but he needed to kind of get a breather for a minute. Right. And I think that was a, a good little compromise, but you know, again, in a universe where your stories aren't really dependent upon kryptonite, I think that's a really interesting way to go, and I'm really fond of that. And I, I can't help but think that the reason Byrne was able to to get away with that was because he knew that his, the, the types of stories that he was telling, he was going to be putting Superman up against threats and uh, villains that were going to be able to hold their own with Superman in most cases anyway. He didn't really need kryptonite. Whereas I think a lot of writers, like you were saying, kind of default to kryptonite because they personally don't see a way to challenge Superman without kryptonite. I think really I think the entire gestalt of John Byrne's run on Superman proves that you don't really need to use kryptonite as often as people seem to want to use it. Now, again, it's part of the Smallville mythos that kryptonite has mutagenic properties And so it's interwoven into the stories. And that's, again, another clever way of doing it. But what I'm saying is, you know, if you approach it, I guess, from a truly creative standpoint, there are ways of making it work. It's the hacks who have to have kryptonite in every fucking story because they otherwise can't see a way to tell a story. And that to me is what separates the men from the boys when it comes to Superman stories.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, my my experience with with um, modern Superman is somewhat varied and also very limited at the same time. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of exposure to a, several different eras. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kryptonite was such a prevalent thing in the Silver Age, because so much of that type of storytelling was to trick your audience and to get them to guess the ending. And that's just not a goal with modern style storytelling. It's not very often. Um, So the, the, the whole appeal of kryptonite seems to be lost. And if you use it too much, then you're, you're missing the point of your character. And yet Superman and kryptonite is such an ingrained part of our culture that every single discussion of Batman and Superman comes down to, well, Batman has kryptonite. Yeah. And, and that's, that's true as far as it goes, but it also doesn't need to be a thing with Superman because kryptonite, I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the punchline of that direction was going to be, but we'll let we'll let it stand the way it was. Um, so, Metallo has these green eyes, and not like sexy Mary Jane green eyes, but like creepy, robotic, glowy green eyes. And I like that close up long panel that we have of it on page 11 before Superman gets knocked out. And I was noticing on page 12 the way Byrne draws Superman flying. Yes. And it's interesting for me because Superman flying horizontally is very much the natural image in my mind and yet so f- infrequently used in earlier eras of comics.
1: Yeah. And it, it kind of makes me think, you know, where does that whole image of Superman flying horizontally even come from? Because uh, apart from, I mean like Wayne boring is as, as as much as I love the guy, he was kind of bad about that. It was almost like Superman was sort of floating on an invisible jet scooter or something like that, where <laughs> he was basically kind of standing upright. Right. And it's it's really weird. And yeah, Sometimes it looks like he's jogging through the air. Yeah. And, uh, and let me think. Who else was Otto Bender? Or no, Al Plastino, I think, right. was he was kind of notorious for that, too. And it just made me wonder, you know, what the hell kind of image is that? I mean, if you saw something like that, like as a person, what you wouldn't say is, look, up in the sky, is it, it's a bird, it's a plane. You wouldn't say that. You would say, that's a guy running in the – running in midair. What the fuck am I looking at? Oh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's Superman. Yeah, 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 yeah. OK, all right.
2: And it's odd because, you know, the Reeves TV show is such a huge influence – on the silver age stories, especially the very early silver age, whenever it was still on the air. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course he always had the shot of the horizontal flight. And yet that never really seemed to make it into the art. And maybe I'm just misremembering and and I'm talking out of my, you know, off the top of my head and forgetting a whole bunch of really cool horizontal flight Superman, but just, you know, I see him in my mind, I could see him arriving majestically and landing, um, vertically, like with one knee up, he lands, you know, as he's coming down, mm-hmm. but just flying through the air,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I, I can't picture him being horizontal in like a Kurt Swan image. I just don't see it. Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, well, it, 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 it when you think about it, the, the entire visual language of Superman flying, it's always been subject to change. And a good example of that is if you look at pre-Superman the movie uh, comics, I would say basically anything from the late Silver Age and getting in through the Bronze Age, he was doing a lot of horizontal flying. But it was, he had this weird tendency to want to use his, his feet sort of as rudders. And you got the idea that he wasn't in complete... Like that that his control over his flight didn't come from mental discipline. It came from, I I guess his physical body shape, you know, the way he would move and twist his body and the way he would Mm -hmm. use his, his arms sort of as wings to, to give himself support when he flew through the air. And that seemed like it changed big time when Superman, the movie came out, when, it was almost sort of like swimming in air or sort of air ballet in a way. And it took a while, but that eventually filtered through to the comics. And the, basically I, I I can't help but think that Christopher Reeve was kind of an unindicted co-conspirator because of all the time that he'd spent flying planes and all the time that he'd spent, you know, hang gliding and all these other things. He had an idea of what, objects when they fly, what they needed to do. And so instead of making these sort of hard right turns in midair, he would sort of arc and bank his body, and it Mm -hmm. looked very smooth and fluid. When Superman had to change directions, which, let's face it, he had to do at times. And I don't know that people... and And I speak here of fans. I don't know that fans always... If they completely appreciate just not just the amazing acting job that Reeve did, although there's that, he's in a weird kind of way an unintentional contributor now to Superman's visual language in a way that I don't know that he's gotten a lot of recognition for. Does that make sense? Right. So –
2: I was actually just paging through to see what other panels we have of Superman flying here. Um, he has his arms out or out and forward in, in the, the the handful of shots that we get. And when he's flying toward Metallo, it makes sense because he's getting ready to punch the guy. Mm-hmm. So having his fists out in front is good. Um, but I would think if you're coming at it from an aerodynamic standpoint, um, face first, arms behind you would be the the best way to do it. But um but we do get into the metallo fight and we get the first <laughs> of many Lois wondering where Clark is and continue, you know concluding to herself that Superman must have saved him or something. Um it just doesn't even occur to, and and that's another thing. Burns undoing a lot of stuff and what he's undoing is Instead of Lois Lane saying Clark Kent's not here, but Superman's here, I wonder if Clark Kent is really Superman. That is not even not even given lip service. Lois's con- Lois's mental conclusion, her first reaction is, "Oh, Superman must have gotten him out of the way before he started beating up Patello." Yes, which is you know just another change to the way stories are done
1: for the better i think because if lois truly thought that there's a chance that clark might in fact be superman even if it was just a passing curiosity lois lane would not let that go she would follow that out to the logical conclusion right my one of the things that i really admire about earth one superman earth one that so far, uh, there are three entries in that series now. Jennifer Carpenter, I mean, Lois Lane in that story, uh, in, in the second volume, she actually does a, a fairly in depth investigation of Clark because there's so much about him that doesn't add up for her. And in the end, she decides not that she was wrong, she decides to suspend her investigation.
2: For the sake of professional ethics, maybe, and being able to work with the guy and all that stuff.
1: Exactly. And she's no, I mean, the idea of that, you know, hey, this guy might be Superman, nowhere on her radar. But, but
2: there's something off about him.
1: Exactly. And she's she's sensitive to that. And so ultimately, the only thing that, that was enough to, I guess, to call her off was, like you were saying, professional courtesy i suppose and that that plays for me or the uh i guess on the other extreme lois in man of steel where she backtracks her anonymous rescuer and then in in so doing basically stumbles across clark kent and so she's she's in on the secret From the ground floor. And this too also works for me. Because in both cases. She's doing what she does. Because she's really good at it. And this is. It's just kind of built into her. This is who she is. She can't stop doing this. And so. Either A. She's going to come to. She's going to. Find out the truth. As she does in in the movie. Or. In Superman Earth 1. Volume 2. Outside forces are going to. Which in this case is her own. I don't better judgment. Maybe she decides that rather than keeping a secret or, or some other stupid thing, taking her off the case, she decides to take herself off it. But it's just Lois Lane is the best that the daily planet has. She's probably the best in the world. And the only way that Superman, his secret is going to stay secret is if she doesn't investigate it. And so if she truly thinks, even if it's, just circumstantial evidence that if she thinks that this guy might in fact be Superman, nothing is going to stop her until she finds out the truth. And I think Byrne played it really well when he decided that he wasn't going to give Lois cause to think that Superman even has a secret identity. And it respects the character's intelligent, uh, intelligence in a way that, as much as I love the pre-crisis era, when you think about it rationally, it didn't always respect Lois Lane's intelligence just as a person. Because if she's this easily fooled, how the hell did she ever get that job to begin with, you know?
2: Right. Well, there, there are a couple things I want to say about that whole aspect of Superman. Um just in case there are any listeners out there who, who, who have limited or, or, or no exposure to, to that era, um, it wasn't that Lois Lane never figured out that Clark was Superman or that Lois Lane, I don't know what, what ended up happening is she decided repeatedly that Clark Kent was Superman Mm-hmm. And then Clark Kent would have to go through some shenanigans to pull the wool over her eyes and basically lie to her directly and blatantly and elaborately in order to, for her to, to to give up that suspicion, Um we were talking about All-Star Superman, you know, many moons ago, mm. and whenever she, whenever Clark Kent unmasks to her, yeah, she she won't believe it because maybe it's a robot. All the times that Superman has lied to her <laughs> <laughs> over the years, she thinks it's just another one of those. Um so it's is interesting thing, and there's one other little aspect about this history that that I don't that I did not realize. Um, before Lois Lane got her own book in 1957, I want to say whenever the she got her two showcase issues, and then she got Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane the series. Mm-hmm. Before that, Lois Lane's suspicion that Superman was Clark almost never were part of the story. The person who did that was Lana. Mm. Lana Lang, from almost the beginning of her existence as a character, her trope was to think that Superboy was Clark and to try to prove it and for Clark to have to lie to her and trick her into thinking that he's not. And it it became a thing of like, well, she's probably, you know, she she may be convinced this time, but you know she's going to get those suspicions again before too long. And... And I think that your comments about the intelligence of the characters are very apropos to both of those females because um, if they have been conclusively shown that Clark is not Superboy or that Clark is not Superman, Mm -hmm. then as intelligent women, they should get over it. Right. (laughs) and they don't. It keeps coming up, which is fine because it's a sitcom in comic book form, and it's it's for kids, and so repeating the tropes are things that kids like in their stories. There's a reason that three-year-olds want to watch the same damn movie over and over and over again. They like the repetition. They get off on it. But we, as older 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 readers, maybe not so much. And so it's good that Byrne is taking things a different direction here, so that a Lois does not have to be convinced that Clark is not Superman, and b she won't have to be convinced over and over and over again because each convince doesn't each conviction. What's the what's the noun of convince? Convincement? I don't know. Each mm. each convincing doesn't doesn't last. Um, but anyways, so yeah, I like the, I like the exchange, right? It is, it is definitely for the better.
1: Well, and you know, the one time that she might have thought they were the, the, the same people, there's a very strong argument that Byrne completely dropped the nachos on that and said, oh yeah, well, uh, Clark and Superman, they were raised together. Like they were sort of step, brothers <laughs> And stuff.
2: And by the way, uh, Lana's a manhunter.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> it's it, it's it, it's kind of funny. Number one, Byrne gets a lot of praise. Rightly so, I might add. Rightly so. For, for the amount of things that he did incredibly well. And a lot of that stuff is total canon, even today. You know, Lois as an army brat is such a good idea that I – you know for as much shit as as Burn gets from some people on the internet, it's funny to me that no one seems willing to abandon Lex Luthor as a corporate titan or Lois as an army brat or tons of other things that come from Burn and nowhere else. But there were times when Burn kind of fucked up a little bit and one of the few justifications I can make about the dreaded season 4 of Smallville is at least Lana wasn't a manhunter.
2: Silver <laughs> <Still for> lining.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, it'll make more sense in contact. I don't know if you're familiar with Lana's goings on in, in season four, but holy shit.
2: I saw them when they aired and have vague memories. I have not rewatched those episodes. Lily and I are done with season two. So we're ready to get into season three, but we're also watching Lost and trying to stay current on current shows. Um, TV is hard work let me tell
3: you
1: yeah oh, it, tell it, me about it yeah um, the way that it is right now and God knows this is soon to change but um, uh, again to peel back the curtain for those listening it's November when Wilson and I are recording this right November 2015 and November the 11th actually uh, 2015 and at this moment my girlfriend and I we're watching, together you understand flash arrow supergirl when what's it called um alias jessica jones starts or is it is it alias jessica jones or is it just jessica jones
2: they were gonna do aka jessica jones they could i don't think i think they avoided the word alias because of the other show uh, but they've dropped the aka it's just jessica jones
1: oh okay all right fine then well then uh jessica jones and then there's uh, when Daredevil comes back, you know. There's going to be that. We've got our hands full, and as we're doing all of that stuff, we're also trying to work in a, a, a rewatch of the entire Gilmore Girls series because we're both fans of Gilmore Girls, and they're doing a
2: a revamp of some sort, right? Or a re- yeah, a, it's return?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a restart of it, or a continuation, however you want to call it, and so. Finding time to do all of this, dude, you you have my sympathies. I mean, you know, especially you know, I'm sure that well, actually, I guess Lily's still too young to to get a job. But you know, there may come a point when she has to get a part time job, and then it's going to be even harder.
2: You know, it's only because of those stupid labor laws. I want to get her out there working like yeah. nine hours a day, but they won't let me.
1: Yeah, I know. It's time to finally start Al- getting a return on your investment.
2: And then I'll have some extra money to play with, right?
1: Yeah, no kidding. So hey, I, I'm totally for it. Exploitation, baby. That's what it's all about. You got to get, you, you got to get a recoup on your investment at some point, man. God damn, human equality. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. So, but yeah, t- I guess to uh to tie it all back though, like I say, Smallville, dreaded season four. At least she wasn't a fucking manhunter. Right. So, anyway, but I guess to get back into the story, here, this is. And I I speak here of page 13. You know, when you really look back at the post-crisis Superman's history, what there is of it at this point, one of the things you kind of have to figure is this Superman kind of sucks right now when it comes to fighting (laughs) supervillains, because he didn't exactly cover himself in glory when he went toe to toe with Bizarro back in the Man of Steel miniseries. Mm-hmm. I mean he did the best he could and let's face it this is really that was probably the first time in his publication history that he'd gone up gone up against somebody who could hit on his level and that's you know usually he could just give somebody a little bit of the old super pimp salad and that was enough to knock out your average bank robber or purse snatcher or what have you but somebody who can knock him across the city that's a new experience for him and He got his ass kicked. And here, again, getting his ass kicked. And so I wouldn't exactly call it quite as bad as Amazing Spider-Man, like the first couple of issues of Amazing Spider-Man, where Spider-Man got the shit beaten out of him in every... I don't think he won any of his fights except on a technicality until probably like the seventh or eighth issue of that series. And then he actually started getting good at what he was doing. And it's almost like this Superman is going through a much slower growth curve because he's been on the job now for a couple of years. And every time one of these supervillains shows up, he always gets the shit beaten out of him before some kind of – I don't know, before something happens. Whether it's the – in Bizarro's case, he sacrifices himself or in this – well, actually, we'll get to what happens to this version of Metallo. But suffice it to say, Superman's got nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, what must Superman's reputation in Metropolis have been at this moment, you know? <laughs> Just makes you wonder.
2: Yeah, I also wonder if, like, if this is the part of his history where the stakes start getting raised. Maybe he hasn't had to go up against super villains before now, but two issues from now, he's going to f- an apocalypse. Yeah. And. And later on, they retcon that he did occasionally help out the Justice League with big bads like Darkseid. Yeah. But but that's, of course, not in Burns' head as he's writing this.
1: I never bought that. I am so, I know what Perez was going for with all of that. I just never bought into it. I'm sorry. I can't.
2: It, it, it doesn't really – it's one of those uh, retcons that doesn't really quite fit with the narrative as it was in, at the time. Um, but this guy, look at page 14. This guy has taken a pounding on his face. Yes, he has. And it's because Metallo has kryptonite. I mean, that's why he's making such an impact. You know, uh, a solid steel robot punching Superman in the face without the kryptonite would would be, you know, whatever. But because of the kryptonite, the Superman's body is being weakened. And so each punch is hitting him hard. But yeah, he is bruised and battered by the end of this issue.
1: Yeah, it looks like and he's it, got a black eye, some swelling. I would not
2: want to be that guy. Um, we do. I don't know if if you want to go into the to the origin that we get go right ahead with, but th- there's there have been flashes of it throughout this scene, and it's not. But it's not until this, uh, page seventeen that we get like a really thorough. Okay, this is what happened. And we find out that the the scientists stole the ship. Mm-hmm. And I we get the really cool and iconic post-crisis Superman ship. To me, this is as iconic as the Donner ship. The, um, the Superman 1 crystal star-looking ship and this mm-hmm. ship are both just, you know... When you see that, you automatically link it with an era. It's one of the things I like about... You mentioned Supergirl. Um, mm-hmm. That I think helps to set it apart from... It's not emulating Donner, but it's including Donner in its various emulations. They didn't use the Crystal Starship idea.
1: Um, I, I never really liked the Crystal Starship. It. I, look, I'm not trying to detract from your point, but it's just... I don't know when I'm ever going to have a chance to say so, so fuck it, I'm taking this opportunity. The, I, I guess the thematic... metaphor that Donner wanted to work with in Superman the movie was that jor was God and he was sending his son Christ, kal to save people, to be the light that shows the way. And as part of that, I, it's kind of hard to for me to overlook, you know, this whole Star of Bethlehem type ship that he sent his son to Earth in. And it's, that's, I don't mind that as a storytelling type of metaphor because that's, I think that's the metaphor. It's pretty clear that that's the metaphor that Snyder was working with in uh, Man of Steel. But the difference was he wasn't really as, except for like one and a half scenes, I don't really think it the the sort of Christ metaphor was all that explicit. I mean, if you see it, you see it, but he's not beating you over the head with it. But my God, man, the what Donner was doing, it was, I mean, it was way over the top didactic. And so finally, by the time... You know, you get to that bit in The Fortress where Jarrell even says the words, my only son. And, you know, when you think about a father saying that about a, uh, his son, that's going to do amazing things. I mean, let's face it, Western audiences are only going to interpret that in a limited number of ways. I I don't know. I mean, I, I think that was going just a little over the top with it. And the beauty of what Byrne did is it doesn't – if you're determined to impose some kind of literary Christ figure type of – a metaphor on uh, onto the material, you can do that, but it's not absolute. It's easy to overlook, or you could go the other way and say, Hey, this is Moses, and that works too. Or you could say, You know what? It's not, it's not Christ, it's not Moses, it's just Superman, guys. Put leave your religion out of it, and that works too. And that, uh, anyway, so this is a long way of saying I like burn shit better.
2: <laughs> um. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, he's – he is good. Um, I was thinking about Smallville when I was seeing this scene, and a lot of the shenanigans that happened with Clark's ship, <laughs> at least early in the run. Yeah. Because the idea of the scientists coming and getting the ship and stealing it out from under the Kent's nose was probably um, seen as interesting and different and cool, and it is interesting and cool. Um. But so many people, <laughs> that that ship got stolen a couple times, if I recall, or at least moved around by several different people yes, it um, in, in <laughs> Smallville. So uh, it's one of those things that, I don't know, It just different eras handle it different ways. I like that he saw the Kryptonian recording, but the linguist in me has real issues with him even being able to decipher a part of it. Because if you're just hearing language without context or meaning, you have no fucking clue what's being said or done. And it's, it, there, there's a reason that the word Rosetta and the term Rosetta Stone is such an important part of our understanding of language is that without two different languages side by side or at least some kind of meaning accompanying the language, there's, there's no way to understand what is being said. So I always – it's one of those tropes in fiction, not just comic fiction, although it certainly happens in comics a lot. It's one of those tropes of fiction of deciphering language. No, no, no. You cannot decipher language unless there's somebody there or some other language to add meaning to what you're reading.
1: Really? Huh. I, I guess I would have assumed if, if you've got a speech – and I use quotation marks around that. If you've got a speech that only goes on like two sentences – you can analyze that as long as you want. It's not going to help you all that much. But if you have like an hour or two hour long lecture or however long Jarrell's little speech was uh, supposed to last. I thought and obvi- maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I guess I would have assumed that you could at least glean some meaning from it. You're saying that's not possible.
2: It really isn't. Because um, hmm. you could see some repetition you could probably see patterns in what's going on but there's there's just really no way of knowing if the repeated things are um a noun or a verb or which noun is is this a speech about apples or is it a speech about the flux capacitor we just there there's no way of knowing what's being said unless you have gestural meaning added in mm-hmm. um like like if I say apple and I'm talking about apple to someone who doesn't speak English, but I have an apple in my hand and I can point to it as I'm talking. Um, or like I said, some other language that's saying the same thing, but in another language like mm-hmm. the Rosetta Stone has. Right. Uh, it, has it has this – the Rosetta Stone is the same text in three different languages. Hmm. And that's how we're able to unlock a lot of our understanding. That's how we, er, early on we were able to unlock a lot of our understandings of, of ancient languages is because we knew one of the languages. And using that as a starting point, we could begin to figure out how the other languages
1: worked. Right. Hmm. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah,
2: It's it, 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 it's it's – it's a minor complaint because it happens so much but it just, it's one of those things I thought of as I was reading it.
3: Hmm.
1: Okay. Well, fair enough. The but that is a that that is a good origin though in that one actually there was a moment in uh, Emmett Vale's little little uh, speech there where and I, now of course I can't find Oh, we're going back to page 14 here. The fourth panel he holds we see this kind of of point-of-view shot from uh, Metallo's angle. Emmett Vale holding up a mirror that shows Metallo's own face, but obviously you see Emmett Vale holding it. And it kind of made me wonder, Did is there supposed to be a similarity in their facial features between Metallo's uh, face and uh, Vale's face? Or is that just in my in my imagination.
2: I like, hadn't thought about it, but you're right. They do look somewhat similar.
1: It's yeah. It's really just the brow and the nose. I mean, it basically it, like, I guess if I had to put it into words, what I'd say is it, it's like veil vale made a sort of idealized version of himself to kill Superman, which adds an entire layer of bullshit to veil vale as a character that I kind of like, but I don't know if that's actually what burn was going for or not. It's, Hard to be sure. I I just wanted to ask, you know, so.
2: Now the, um, the, the origin of this guy is, I'm I'm just trying to refresh my memory, make sure I'm not saying the wrong thing. Um, he's not completely constructed. He's, he is a repaired body, right? Yeah. He says, what have you done to me? I, you, you've been reborn. Okay. So the guy was terminally wounded or or very badly wounded in a car, in a a car accident or a truck accident. Isn't that right?
1: Um, I'm kind of blanking actually on the post-crisis Metallo. What I assumed based only on this issue was that Vale transplanted his brain into a completely cybernetic body and then dropped his old body into that acid tank. And that's why there were traces of human bone in there. Um, Oh. That may not – maybe I'm just misreading that, but that's what I – and again, I mean I, I truly am blanking on post-crisis Metallo's origin story.
2: Well, certainly the bone, if he's replaced it with metal, he doesn't need the actual human bone anymore. So certainly that bit would need to get dropped in, um, whether he had an entirely new body or he's – well, there's no mu- – there, when we see him, there's no musculature. It really is just a metallic body with skin grafted over it. He's said, like, here, put some gloves on. Um, the other reason I brought it up is because the original Metallo was a dude in a truck accident.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And so I was wondering if, if that little bit of the original Metallo was actually copied over here or not. Um, in any case, the idea of, of dumping the old body in a, in a vat is just, it's just gruesome.
1: Yes, it is. Um,
2: okay. So they fight and in the middle of the fight we have. This is one of those things that I remember from my earlier reading. A girl, uh, Pearl, comes in to update Lex Luthor and what's going on. And this is just like the first in a line of Luthor girls. Yes. That, that seem to just like he just has. And sometimes he kills one off and sometimes he, you know, a lot of times they just new ones show up from nowhere. But it's like he has this string of women he has working for him as assistants for various purposes.
1: Yes. There's also a little bit of a clue to the timeline here in Lex's office on page 19. This is panel one, two, three, four. The clock on the wall says that it's, it says 1303. So Mm -hmm. military time works out to 103 in the afternoon. Right. And, We know that Clark met Lois for their little jogging date loosely in the morning. So if we take that clock literally, Superman and and Metallo have been throwing down with each other for at least an hour or two. Which, when you think about it, this is not only the the most intense fight that Superman's ever had, this is the longest fight that he's ever had. And it does kind of speak a little bit to... I guess the amount of punishment he can take, but also the amount of kryptonite he's been exposed to. So I don't know what to make of that other than to say that, you know, he's been uh, pounding the shit out of Metallo and Metallo's been pounding the shit out of him for quite a while now. And they're both. Yeah, they're a little the worse for wear right now, but they're they're not dying. That's the point. So whatever you want to do with that.
2: Yeah. The only other possible way I would read it is that if it were Saturday. And they were going out for like a lunch run or something. But either way, um, th- th- this is – yeah, this is this is probably his most intense fight he's ever had. Um, I guess – let me just see what else we have. They both come out of the rubble.
1: Uh, yeah, and Metallo has gone full Terminator at this point.
2: Right, which would have been a movie by this point because that's 84. Mm-hmm. So probably intentionally playing into that, that fandom, although they wouldn't have used the word fandom at the time, um, but that, 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 that reader appeal, because probably there's a huge overlap in the Venn diagram between Superman comics fans and Terminator movie fans.
1: Yeah, that stands, especially in the 80s, yeah. Yeah.
2: Now, what is it that happened to, to Metallo at the end here? Because I was trying to remember... I know that from this issue we go into the um, Lex Luthor trying to prove that Clark is super – or trying to figure out Superman's identity in issue two because he had that big cover. Um, but I don't remember what happens to Metallo here.
1: Well, he does end up in uh, Lex Luthor's custody, for lack of a better word. And what what I think we're supposed to infer – in that issue, is that Lex basically kills Metallo, but being as he's a machine, it's not quite that simple. But in terms of just what the hell happens to Metallo in this issue, I have no idea. You basically just see this panel where there's this huge shadow that crosses over Metallo's metallic head. And it's obviously caught him off guard. Whatever it is, it's in the sky. Metallo's here one second, gone the next, and it's not explicitly said what what happened and even the characters don't really understand what happened and this is one of those things that i i don't i i could be wrong but i don't think we get any elaboration on this in subsequent issues i don't think that there's any kind of reveal here we're basically just supposed to i guess assume that lex used some magic lexcorp tech to abscond with metallo and that's uh, – maybe that's, about, that, that's as much as we're supposed to think about it. I don't know. It's a good question.
2: I wonder I wonder if Michael and Jeffrey were able to add anything else to that whenever they were reading it. Probably not if – because the next time we see him, he's just owned by Lex Luthor, right? Correct. Not owned by, but you know, in the custody of.
1: Yeah. And there's no real explanation, in fact, even how they were able to get him restrained or anything like that because comics. And so – you know, I mean, there are a few pieces left on the table here. And when you think about it, I mean, that sounds like a sort of like a criticism of. Of John Byrne, and it's it's really not. It's 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 really just, a I guess, an acknowledgement that, you know, he had a when you think about it, a kind of a big story that, that he wanted to tell. He obviously didn't want to do it over two issues because maybe two issues is a little too much for what amounts to a jogging date and then a huge mega fist fight, but it's at the same time it's also too big for just one issue so what does one do you know so well,
2: if, it were, if it were 1965 fantastic four he would just end one story and start the next one in one issue so he, he would he would let this leak over in issue two and, and, and wrap up the plot in issue two but then start the next story with with no real no real break um I I like the ending to this one, not the uh, the I don't know what happened to the bad guy ending, because that's kind of weird. But um, one of the tropes of John Byrne's Superman run is the really heavy exposition endings. Yeah. And he avoids that here. He has not yet fallen into that rut or, or fallen into that pattern here. So um, the story does just kind of end – Surprisingly and abruptly But that's kind of how Superman feels about it As it's ending it's Like wait a second What? And then a couple words between him and Lois And then we have the end But you're right As I'm looking at it It does seem to be implying that Lex Luthor Took Metallo Because he says um, I promised that Superman will die by my hand Lex Luthor keeps his promises And there's a black shadow And the robot disappears And Superman says I have an awful feeling I know who snatched him
1: so all that seems to point to Lex Luthor. Right. And some interesting things actually uh, <clears throat> actually come out of that. And um, I do want to talk about Superman number two at some point, but uh, <laughs> I think we're getting a little – we're going a little long here. But yeah, a lot of really neat things actually do end up coming from that. But one of the things that I like about I guess this era of Superman is that not – all of the stories were done in one, but a lot of them were. And you would have – don't get me wrong. You would have subplots that go from one issue to, ne- uh, to the next. But generally speaking, a, a given A plot was going to be resolved by, by, by page 22 – or 23 in this case, but page 22 – of that issue, even if it was to say that there is no resolution, the the fucker's just gone. That's still resolution enough to to put a bow at least on this issue. And it's just I don't know. I you and I live right now, and in fact we've probably I think you and I have uh, at this point we've probably lived the majority of our of our comic book collecting lives in the era of the multi mega part ultra super duper crossover and the idea of having just a simple a relatively simple story that ends in the same issue in which it began it's just kind of refreshing you know to to read this type of a story and not have to have you know a working knowledge of you know the six issues that come before the six issues that follow we can just enjoy this issue you know
2: it's... Yeah, and not even the crossover all the time, but just just the fact that we no longer write comic book stories; we write comic book arcs, and that's you. That's that's the default, which has got to make getting into this really, really hard. Like I remember whenever I was first trying to get new comics off the shelf, um, there was a, the the style at the time with Spider Man was to very distinctly mark on the cover part one of four part two of four. And so I waited until the spectacular Spider-Man covers finished their current story before I started buying spectacular Spider-Man same with web and, 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 um, plain old Spider-Man at the time, because I didn't want to come in the middle of an arc. And nowadays that's just all there is are arcs, arcs and subplots,
1: It's yeah. And the thing is, a lot of a lot of writers, what they seem to want to do when they come onto a to any book is they've got to start with a, a story they want to tell. And it's made up of these arcs that are maybe five or six parts long. And then of those, obviously, you have individual issues. And so if somebody was just getting in on the ground floor of say, Jeff Johns' run on Superman, I feel sorry for him. Because you need to understand infinite crisis. You need to understand the, the immediate context in which uh, that's, that first Jeff Johns story is taking place where Clark doesn't have powers. You need to understand um, that it's not going to last. Superman's going to be coming back. You need to understand this story is actually not just a story unto itself. This is a the beginning of what amounts to like a four-some-odd-year fucking epic that concludes in my opinion with world of new krypton and then war of new krypton and there's no easy way to just casually read those comics and just pick up the ones you want i don't know if comics are necessarily better for this because it feels like every story that comes out is the writer trying to convince himself that he's alan moore writing watchmen I, I don't know. I'm not trying to sound like, I know I sound like an old fart whenever I say that, but damn it, that's just how I feel, you know?
3: <laughs>
1: well, anyway, so, uh, that's, I guess what I've got for Superman number one. Now, do you have anything else that you want to throw in? Cause, um, uh, you mentioned a minute ago or a uh, minute ago, uh, over two and a half hours ago that you had a, a couple of curveballs about this issue. Did you work your way through all of those or?
2: Yeah, they were, they were, they were, they were minor and we, we talked about it along the way. Um, The only other thing that I thought about, uh, actually, two other things I thought about as we were going along is Lex Luthor is bald here because, of course, Lex Luthor is bald, but his eyebrows are red. Yes. And that, you know, goes back to how Byrne drew pre bald Luthor with the red hair. But of course, it definitely feeds into the later developments of this era of Luthor. And it's, it's different to previous versions of Luthor. I mean, the very earliest golden age Luthor had red hair, but in pre-crisis, he was a brown-headed boy. And uh, in the silver age, I should say, he, was, he, he had brown hair. I actually just read an issue where uh, Lex Luthor, uh, young Luthor, Superboy's era Luthor, went to the future to deal with the Legion of Superheroes and actually masqueraded as his younger self to work his way into their trust. Because mm. it's time travel, so he can do that. And But he put on a brown wig to make it look like he was pre-bald and therefore pre-evil Luthor. Um, so I read that issue and this issue in the same day. Just kind of an interesting, interesting difference. And um, just in the final moments of this issue, the fact that Superman's an alien comes out to Lois for the first time. Yeah. Like they've had whatever relationship they've had, you know, over the course of the seven years of his career, but she didn't know he was an alien at first. She's a bit put off by it. She's like, how come you never said? He's like, well, I didn't know until just now. So, you know, we're we're both on the ground floor of that whole idea.
1: Right. And, you know, it's kind of funny for as big a revelation as that is not really. I don't recall that all that much really comes out of that. I mean, wow, you're an alien. Holy shit. That's weird. Hey, what's for lunch? <laughs> so, I don't know. It's, it, anyway, I, I I really don't know. I mean, I know that I've said everything that I've said, you know, during the process of recording this show with you. But I really want to, in case it's not clear, I want to drive home the point that I'm not making fun of this issue. I really do enjoy it. I, I especially love this whole, like I've said, I love this whole John Byrne era of Superman. I put this up against pretty much anything from Superman 's entire publishing history, this is as good as anything, and I dare say better than most and it's it's just really enjoyable. I love this issue and thank you for for joining in now before you and I go our separate ways, uh, would you mind telling everyone where does they uh, where they can find you because you've got a show that you do and people need to be listening to that
2: yeah and and i'll just i 'll just uh, before I do that reaffirm that yeah John burns Superman it's not as lengthy as some other huge creative runs of characters, but it really does need to be on a level with like Claremont's X-Men, you know, or or George Perez's Wonder Woman or John Byrne's Fantastic Four. It's one of those things that is hugely critical to a character's history. And and needs to be read to help understand where that character has been and where he's going. But yeah, um, I, I talk about, um, I talk about, I have a couple of things going, uh, neither of which has had an episode in a while because of school. But every weekend I'm like, am I going to get a chance to edit this episode? Uh, maybe. But those are um, Avengers inspirations that I do with my daughter, um, which is a look back at the Silver Age of Marvel's, uh, cinematic Universe characters and where they started and where all those stories got their inspiration from, hence the title. And that can be found by doing a Google search for Avengers inspirations. Uh, it's at the complete Marvel reading order website, but just just search or podcast search, it'll it'll come up. Um, also, I like talking about Superman and I like talking about modern Superman, and so. The New 52 Adventures of Superman at new52superman.libson.com is, is something that I'm trying to make an ongoing concern again, but it has not been for a couple months. Hopefully, by the time this comes out in February, Marchish era, um, I'll have gotten a new episode or two out over the holidays. That's my goal. Um, but yeah, those are both going on. And my backlog of Superman thoughts about his Golden Age era can be found at goldenagesuperman.libson.com another thing that i keep thinking man i would really like to do another one of those but i haven't for a while
1: yeah i know what you mean i someday you need to start a star wars podcast
2: yeah and i i did and then i abandoned (laughs) it within a couple of months so um i would really like to you know what i'm doing um My son and I just recently watched our last of the Star Wars movies, Mm -hmm. and he immediately asked to read the comics. Mm. So we've been reading slowly the Marvel Comics series of Star Wars, and I tell myself, okay, whenever he and I get to the issues that I last covered on that show, I am going to sit down with a microphone and start podcasting about them going forward from there. So
3: um,
2: I have a plan in my head for doing more Star Wars podcasting. It's just life is a bitch right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with school and I am old. So after I put my kids to bed and it's like nine 30, I am tired and spending another hour recording or editing is like one of the last things I feel like doing a lot of nights. And, and I don't know what it is, but I need to, I need someone else to pay my bills so that I could stop working in podcast more. <laughs> so if any of you out there, want to contribute to the support John Wilson as a podcaster fund, feel free to do so. If, 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 if I get enough emails about with, with money involved, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to make y'all able to pay me.
1: I'm joking, of course, <laughs> but only half. <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. And honestly, since this is going to be kind of it for at least, you know, for you and me recording at least until March of 2016 – wherein, by the way, he and I are going to regroup and talk about Batman v Superman. We've pretty much filled in all of the uh, empty slots that I had for this uh, Batman-Superman mega-series, and I'm working my way through. John filled in all my holes. And so the only, only one the
2: Only the best and most luscious ways.
1: Yes, that's right. It was very tender, and you were, you were a total gentleman about the whole thing, and thank you for being so tender. And the only other thing is going to be March the 29th, whenever the Batman v Superman reaction episode comes out, which I think as far as timing is concerned, that may be the smallest window between the time I record an episode and the time that I release it. So that should be kind of fun. But uh, thank you so much for joining in on this whole series, because... I know that you've donated a lot of your time. I think by the time all said and done, you'll probably done at least 12 hours, which is a lot by any standard. And so thank you very much. You've elevated this mega series far and beyond what I think it would have been without you. And I'm really grateful for that.
2: Well, I I had a blast. And I I am very uh, happy and thankful for the chance to come on and talk about Superman and you and I. You and I just seem to seem to just go lock in sync when we talk about Superman. It seems like we should we should make that a regular thing. But um, I, I'm excited for the listeners because while I have enjoyed all of the episodes we've done together, that five-hour look back at Man of Steel is still in their future, yeah. and um, and that's exciting. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to come out in the editors' room, so I'm looking forward to hearing it again.
1: Um, the third part I, of that I think you're actually gonna enjoy because there's a special guest that I recruited to do the introduction for that episode so
2: okay a little fun um, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing that again but yeah thank you so much for having me this is um, this is one of those things that has has made my life as a podcaster feel like like it's cool and there are people out there who like hearing what I had to say so yeah um, Thank you very much for, for having me on here. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Now, as to next week, John is going to come back in the past because he's going back to the future in the past when he and I are going to go back in time to record next week's episode, which is going to be all about Dark Knight over Metropolis. And if it sounds like we've already recorded that episode, we have. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's that's going to be next week. So lots of fun. I've already got... Uh, I, th- I think I've got that show basically bashed out. So that's really going to be pretty much it. So then from there, five hours of Man of Steel over a period of three weeks. Then finally after that, March the 29th, episode 141, our thoughts on Batman v. Superman. But that's pretty much it for us this week. So bye, everybody. We'll both be back next week. We are out. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, <laughs>
2: Okay, I'm going to do the promo now.
0: Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo.
2: What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it.
0: Well, get on with it then.
2: Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America.
0: Wow being dramatic there, aren't we?
2: Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off?
0: No, 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 you're fine. You're good.
2: Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting.
0: Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one?
2: Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things just go with it go with it go with it
0: okay don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show
2: oh oh yeah okay so join lily wilson the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world uh-huh. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the avengers franchise of films
0: and some that aren't in those films yet but will be because we started with the anime before he had a full film
2: oh well yeah
0: and don't forget spider-man he's not the king of Ender, but he's there
2: Oh, okay. So, um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe.
0: Better. And where should they go, not see this magical podcasty goodness?
2: New episodes can be (coughs) found Do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website. cmro.travis-starns.com and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself.
0: Um, Dad, don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh, yeah,
2: Avengers Inspirations Podcast. Listen and stuff.
0: Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you.
3: Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. I'm trailing. Man, it sure is great to be back to FCTC after such a long time. Yes, it is. And we've been away so long. Yeah, but real life... And, uh, you, you know what? I, I just I just can't do this. Can't do what? We have taken more breaks from this show than my wife has had in her entire life. I mean, we can talk about real life getting in the way. Which it has. But it's, it's just not fair. So we're not going to joke around, and we're going to simply say that for the moment, we're back, and there's a lot of neat stuff to talk about. Like Season 2 of Lois and Clark. And the death of Clark Kent. And the launch of Superman, the Man of Tomorrow. And the return of Lex Luthor. And the trial of Superman. And Underworld Unleashed. (laughs) The show can still be found at the Superman homepage, as well as at the Fortress of bailey And we're still part of the Superman Podcast Network. So From Crisis to Crisis is back. For now. And it will still come out on Thursdays. Most week at www.fortressofbailey2.com, www.supermanhomepage.com, or www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus, at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De of Milan, Italy.